0: 1850, Imperial China. A Christian missionary, a suicidal general, a boy emperor, an American mercenary, and a failed schoolteacher who claimed to be the literal younger brother of Jesus Christ all converged in a conflict that would rattle the world. All in all, the Taiping Rebellion would become the largest civil war ever fought, resulting in 30 million deaths and changing the course of world history. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. This is Episode 54, The Second Son of God. Some notes before we begin. In China, the family name comes first, so you'll notice quite a few people with the same first name, but that actually means they're related. Secondly, I will be using the Romanized names and pronunciations in this episode, and I will do so to the best of my ability. Lastly, this episode contains extraordinary descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Chapter 1 A World Within a World. Tensions were high in the Qing Dynasty, but you could hardly tell from within the walls of the Summer Palace just northwest of Beijing. Emperor Zhangfeng. The seventh ruler of the Qing Dynasty spent nearly all of his time here, in the sprawling palace grounds, where ornate tiered pagodas and gilded theatres looked out over riding trails, lakes, and gardens that spanned over 800 acres. Nobility from all across the territory the Qing Dynasty ruled over, Manchuria, Mongolia, and all of modern-day China all enjoyed the finest food, drink, and entertainment the mid-19th century had to offer. Everything appeared idyllic, but whispers of trade deficits and threats from foreign powers haunted parts of the sprawling Summer Palace. Just a few years prior, China had been humiliated by the English in what's now called the First Opium War. The British Empire had sought out the unique trade goods of East Asia, silk, porcelain, jade, and most importantly, tea. Tea. By 1800, England was importing well over 10 million pounds of tea per year, and taxes on tea alone accounted for over 10% of the entire British Empire's revenue. England's obsession with tea was a bona fide addiction. But aside from silver, China was not interested in most trade goods from the industrialized West, and Qing officials limited trade to a small selection of certified trade ports where the imports were heavily taxed. Seeking to relieve this trade imbalance, England searched for a trade good that the Chinese population would crave. What they arrived at was opium. Using the poppy yield from their nearby colony of India, the British Empire produced thousands upon thousands of tons of opium. The English sold opium in Chinese ports for a while before the Chinese government realized its addictive qualities and ill effects on local consumers. Soon, the Qing dynasty banned the sale of opium, which prompted the rise of an enormous drug-running operation supported by the British government. When China clamped down even harder, the British sent gunboats up the Yangtze River and forced the Qing dynasty to rewrite treaties in England's favor. The Chinese concessions included lowering tariffs, opening up many more treaty ports in the north that included European consulates, and ceding the small island of Hong Kong to the British completely free of Chinese jurisdiction. Overall, the whole ordeal was an enormous humiliation for China. As opium dens popped up throughout southern port cities, China's future looked bleak. But aside from the occasional whispers of these problems, the denizens of the Summer Palace lived out their lives in lavish, ignorant bliss. None, perhaps, were less aware of the problems facing China than the Emperor himself, Zhang Feng, The Emperor of the Qing Dynasty was not actually Chinese. He was Manchu, descendants of the nomadic hunters north of the Great Wall that was originally built to keep them out. Since the collapse of the Ming Dynasty 200 years earlier, his bloodline had ruled from Beijing in northern China. Natural disasters, economic turmoil, and encroaching western influence had all plagued the Chinese under Qing rule. But instead of overseeing broad reforms, Qing Dynasty leaders dug in their heels and relied more heavily on the bureaucratic status quo. Residents of the Summer Palace were confident that the Mandate of Heaven, which essentially taught that emperors were chosen by the universe to rule, assured success in every imperial decree. Besides, civil servants and other parts of the government were chosen on a meritocratic basis via Confucian examinations. Arduous tests designed so that only those with the most extensive knowledge of the teachings of Confucius could pass. Surely the brightest scholars in the land were steering China towards a glorious future. In the gardens, every bird song seemed to echo heaven's assurance. But as the imperial residents and visitors enjoyed their epic poems and succulent roast duck, in their comfortable world within a world, a storm was brewing in the south. Chapter 2. The Dreamer Dreams swirled in the head of the young Hong Zhukuan. Confucian proverbs, inscribed on glowing stones, floated over the mountains around his village. He leapt from one to the next, as if he were ascending a flight of stairs. His memorized words of wisdom served as stepping stones as he ascended higher and higher into the sky. The stone now wobbling beneath his feet was inscribed with the words, to see what is right and not to do it is want of courage. He hopped to the next stone. Wheresoever you go, go with all your heart. Another step. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Soon his mountain village had vanished below a layer of haze as he followed Confucius's teachings up to the clouds. Better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without. But then he stopped. The stepping stone in front of him vanished. Hong Zhukuan clutched his temples, trying desperately to remember the specific proverb. The mental block turned to stone in his mind as he was pulled back towards the earth, flailing. Zhukuan screamed as the ground rose to meet him. The ten-year-old boy sat up from his bed in a cold sweat. Panting, eyes wide, he reached under his bed and heaved up a heavy tome, The Five Classics of Confucius. He began thumbing through, trying to find the passage he had forgotten, the forgotten passage that had prevented him from reaching heaven. Hong Zhukuan was born in a small mountain town in southern China in 1814, the youngest of three brothers. He showed an aptitude for scholarship from an early age. His cognition, recall, and general wit astounded his family and the other members of the village. Seeing his potential, his entire family saved up funds for the journey to Canton, a large port city in the south, where the imperial examinations were conducted. Other members of the community pitched in as well, knowing that if Hong Zhukuan could pass the examinations and become an administrator, he would bring the village prosperity. In 1827, the 13-year-old Hong Zhukuan embarked on his journey south, bearing the weight of the collective hope of his entire village. Arriving in Canton, Hong Zhukuan was overwhelmed by the crowds. He had never seen so many people before. Canton had been a major trading hub for over 2,000 years, and it showed. European embassies and Siamese markets intermingled with the traditional Chinese architecture in the sprawling city. Smells of Indonesian spices mixed with the scent of half-rotten fish floating in from the town harbor. Music of British brass instruments was all but drowned out by calls from hundreds of Chinese merchants. As Hong Zhukuan walked with his fellow applicants up the cobblestone street on the way to the examination, he tried not to stare at foreigners passing him on all sides. This was the first time Zhu Quan had ever seen a European, or an African, or an Arab, or really anyone who wasn't from central China. Still taking in the wonders around him, Zhu Quan was led to the examination compound. He was rigorously searched for any hidden copies of Confucian texts, and then shown to his quarters, a small room with wood walls and no windows. There he was given a water pitcher, a chamber pot, bedding, food, and inkstone, ink, and brushes. He would spend the next 72 hours holed up in this space. He would not be permitted to leave for any reason. Hong Zhuquan had heard stories of people dying during the examinations, whose corpses still remained locked up for the full 72 hours. The stories were true. In the cramped room, Hong Zhuquan settled onto his seat on the floor and began his examination. His tasks Recall various Confucian proverbs and integrate them into an eight-part essay. Any misquote meant an automatic failure. Zhu Quan diligently worked through the 72 grueling hours, struggling to concentrate over the occasional shouting from other cells. Sleep was virtually impossible in the tiny room, so he worked on, carefully concocting an essay while quoting Confucius to perfection. After the 72 hours concluded, each and every tired, sunken-eyed test taker was allowed to leave their respected rooms. Hong Zhuquan and a dozen of the other exhausted scholars left the compound, each hoping that they would beat the odds and place in the top 1% that was required to pass. Hong Zhuquan did not pass the imperial examinations. His family did what they could to comfort the boy, but the disappointment in the village was palpable. Everyone had invested in him, and he had failed. The dejected Quan spent the rest of his teenage years doing hard agricultural work. At the age of 20, he became a schoolmaster and began privately saving up for another attempt at the examinations. In 1836, at the age of 22, Hong Quan made a return voyage to Canton to retake the imperial examination. After another grueling 72 hours frantically scribbling out his essay in a dim cell, Hong re-emerged into the city to await his results. It was on the eve of the First Opium War, and tensions were higher than when he had first come to Canton. And that didn't help the sense of doom he felt when his thoughts turned to the examination. One night, while wandering home from a seedy bar near the harbor, Hong Zhuquan heard a commotion. Across the street, a Protestant missionary was preaching, illegally, to a crowd of largely disinterested onlookers. The missionary's name was Edwin Stevens. Hong Xiuquan was intrigued enough to stick around, and he accepted a pamphlet from the Christian minister. The writings given to Hong Xiuquan were a series of sermons and selected New Testament verses translated into Chinese, entitled, Good Words for Exhorting the Age. That pamphlet that Stevens handed to Hong Xiuquan would radically alter the course of Chinese history. Zhukun returned to his village, having failed the examinations yet again. As depression set in, Hong hid the trinkets he had brought home from Canton, including the Christian pamphlet, and tried to forget about his failure, for a little while at least. Because here's the thing about Hong Zhukun, he was nothing if not persistent. He again set aside his feelings of his own inadequacy and hit the books with renewed vigor. He mulled over Confucian wisdom day and night, reciting line after line under his breath. Ancient Chinese parables echoed through his mind night and day for a full year. By the end of it, Zhu Quan was certain, absolutely certain, that all of Confucius's writings were permanently etched into his brain. In 1837, Hong Zhu Quan once again raised enough money and headed south to Canton to attempt the imperial examinations. Same voyage south, same imperial compound, same small room, same wretched seventy-two hours. The third time that Hong Shukuan failed the imperial examination was by far the worst. He did what he could to hold it together on the journey home, swallowing his agony and personal dishonor, trying not to think of the sheer amount of money sunk into his failed attempts to pass that test. Not once, not twice, but three times. And here he was, returning to his village yet again with nothing to show for it. When he returned home, it was too much. He couldn't face his community. They all had sacrificed so much, betting on his intelligence, only to be disappointed once again. He collapsed in sheer existential anguish upon arriving home. His family carried him inside. Hong Zhuquan's next few days can only be described as a complete and total mental breakdown. He was placed in a bed where he lay in essentially a coma for days, only occasionally yelling out strings of words that made little to no sense. His family feared for his life. Under his bed, the Christian pamphlet gathered dust. While Hong Zhukuan was unconscious, he experienced wildly vivid dreams. A procession of all manner of men and beasts "'whisked Zhukuan up to it in an illustrious palace in the sky. "'Once there, the parade of men and animals gathered around him and tore into his stomach. "'They reached inside his midsection and removed all of his entrails. "'When they were done, the entrails were replaced, changing him forever. "'Then he was sewn up. "'He was led into another room of the palace, where an old man in flowing robes with a long golden beard "'sat upon a towering throne.' He spoke to Hong Zhukuan, voiced like thunder, and said, You are my son. He then lamented the current state of China and said that the Chinese people had turned away from him, the one true god of heaven. China now worshipped demons and served false idols. A hole opened in the floor beneath Hong's feet, and he could suddenly see all of China rife with defilement and perversion. A younger man, dressed in white, with a short beard, then approached. The man was introduced as Zhukuan's older brother. He handed Hong a seal of heaven and a large sword and told him to use it to slay the demons of China. Zhuquan accepted the seal and the sword from his apparent older brother and looked back towards the mighty man who claimed to be his father. The ruler of heaven told Hong Zhukuan in his booming voice, "'This is your destiny.'" And just like that, Hong Zhukuan was staring at the ceiling of his home. He clutched for the sword and the seal, but found they were no longer in his hands. He pulled up his shirt and felt where he had been sewn up, but found nothing. Zhuquan's family rejoiced that he had awoken from his prolonged coma, but when he told him about his visions, they reacted about how you would expect. His visions were downplayed as nothing but delirium, and he soon returned to his job as a schoolmaster. But something about Hong had fundamentally changed, and his family and friends couldn't ignore it. He now spoke with a confidence and was more gregarious, friendly. Some even reported that his height and size increased dramatically. His cousin later said that, quote, his gaze had become piercing and hard to endure, unquote. The despondent Hong Zhukuan who had fallen into the coma had awoken a new man. Healthier and sharper of mind, Quan returned to his studies, still the only path to excellence he knew, and over time he spoke less and less of his visions. A few years later, Quan left for Canton to try the civil service exam for the final time. Once again, he failed. His family feared for the worst when he returned. However, upon his arrival at the village, he didn't suffer a breakdown like he did after his previous failure, this time... With a quiet dejection, he simply accepted that he was destined to be a commoner. Chapter 3. A Word from the Lord. A few months after Hong Zhukuan's final attempt at the imperial examination, he was visited by his cousin, Hong Rangan. Rangan had spent much of his time in Canton under the tutelage of several Christian missionaries who were preaching illegally in the city the newly converted Ringon found the pamphlet Zhu Kwan had received from the Christian minister all those years ago, including many portions of scripture translated into Chinese. Ringon urged Zhu Kwan to give the writing a look. Skeptical of his cousin's newfound religiosity, Zhu Kwan nevertheless accepted the pamphlet and began reading good words for exhorting the age, which taught about God the Father, Creator of the world, and His beloved Son, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. There were illustrations of both divine beings in the pamphlet, and Zhu Quan immediately recognized them as the people from his vision. The powerful man with the golden beard was God the Father, Jehovah, and the man who called himself his older brother was Jesus. His heavenly calling was obviously not the delusion of a madman, but his true destiny. Hong Zhu Quan nearly collapsed when he realized this meant that he was the second son of God. He immediately told the village of his epiphany, desperately trying to show his connection to the Christian writings. Zhuquan proclaimed, quote, I have received the immediate command from God in his presence. The will of heaven rests with me, Unquote. But no one really believed him. No one, except his cousin Hong Ringgan. With religious fervor, the pair destroyed all of the holy idols in Zhu Quan's home, then burned the Confucian literature. They then began preaching their new interpretation of Christianity to anyone who would listen. The village grew worried. Soon, a Qing Dynasty official caught wind of Zhuquan's new beliefs and promptly had him fired from his job as a schoolmaster. But Zhu Quan didn't care at all. He and Rangan began traveling the countryside, preaching with vigor that Christianity was the truth, and that Hong Zhuquan had found divine favor as the son of the one true God. The two soon met up with another distant cousin, Fang Yushan. Yushan was a brilliant young man who had also failed the imperial examination several times. He was immediately enraptured with Zhuquan's story and pledged himself to the cause. In the early 1840s, they left their home province and continued preaching throughout southern China. Many of the first converts were family members and other poor farmers from Hong's ethnic lineage, called the Hakka, a subset of the ethnic majority, the Han. Hakka literally translates to guest people, and they were generally looked down upon by other ethnic groups in China. This made them more receptive to this new radical Christian message which sought to overthrow the current Confucian order. By the mid-1840s, Hong Zhukuan and Hong Ringan had formed a secret society known as the God Worshippers with several hundred members. Zhukuan began writing tracts that would be spread throughout the network of secret God Worshippers in southern China. He and Ringan then had two swords forged that looked identical to the sword God had given Zhukuan in his dream the swords were called the demon-slaying swords and were symbolic of the movement's eagerness to arm itself for the coming apocalypse which xuquan preached more and more about the han people of china would expel the manchu demons and retake the throne of china for god in 1847 hong xuquan was invited to canton to study with southern baptist missionary reverend Issachar j cox roberts Roberts was quite odd, to say the least, having been removed from the Southern Baptist Convention and came to China by way of his native Tennessee to preach of his own accord, a preacher seeking a congregation. Years prior, he had contracted leprosy and was known for his erratic behavior. One historian describes him as, quote, "...falling into difficulties with nearly everyone who worked with him." Unquote. Hong Zhuquan arrived and learned everything he could about Christianity, through rough translation, Reverend Roberts told stories about the tent revivals of the Second Great Awakening in Tennessee, and explored hidden meanings in the Book of Revelation. However, Roberts was often confused by Hong Xiuquan's beliefs. Because of shoddy translation, the rogue Tennessee Reverend could never tell if Xiuquan believed himself to be the literal son of God like Jesus, or a figurative son the way all Christians are considered brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of this confusion, Roberts declined to baptize Zhuquan when he asked. After Roberts' refusal, Zhuquan was not angry. After all, the strange American reverend worshipped his older brother, Jesus. Roberts just didn't understand, but he would in time. It had taken Jesus years to achieve his own spiritual calling. Now, it was time for Zhukuan to pursue his. He and Reverend Roberts parted ways. The time Hong Zhukuan spent with the Leper Reverend from Tennessee may have been cut short, but what he learned from the West would prove vital to his movement. In a letter received from Feng, Zhuquan learned that the God-worshippers were finding success in the mountain villages north of Canton, so he and Rangan headed north, eager to see the growth of their now-not-so-secret society. The region they traversed was dangerous. The Manchu government to the north had little to no control, and local bandit lords and river pirates roamed the region, exerting their will as they pleased. Sure enough, Zhukuan and Rangon were held up by local bandits. The group attacked the pair and robbed them blind, even taking their demon-slaying swords. But the two men survived, leading both to believe that their lives were protected by God, that their mission was truly divine. Eventually, Zhukuan and Rangon reached Feng Yushan at a large village in the White Thistle Mountains. They were overcome with joy when they saw what had happened in their absence. Thousands of new believers had come from across the province. All of them were eager to see the now legendary Son of God himself. Hong Zhukun preached to his followers. Over the course of months, he expounded on his increasingly sprawling visions from God and explained that his new religion was not radical at all. Instead, it was simply a return to the Chinese folk belief of Shangdi, meaning Highest Deity, which was the majority belief before Confucius and the imperial system. The god-worshippers grew in number each and every day, and Zhukuan and his advisors, Rangan, Yushan, and two newer members named Yang and Zhao, began setting up a proper administration. Hong Zhukuan and his advisors issued heavenly decrees about how their society would operate, these decrees were the beginning of a theocracy, with policies ranging from audaciously progressive to radically oppressive. First, private land was abolished. All land would be used communally. Imperial examinations were banned, along with all Confucian literature. Footbinding, slavery, and prostitution were all made illegal. All social classes were abolished. Zhukun also declared that radical gender equality would be recognized and women could serve in any role, including military positions. However, there was a strange, separate-but-equal policy where men and women could not work or live together. And finally, alcohol, opium, tobacco, and gambling were outlawed under the penalty of death. Other mandates demonstrated the movement's symbolic independence from China's ruling elites. For instance, the standard men's hairstyle in imperial China was the Q, which was a shaved head save for a long braid towards the back. Many native Han and Hakka people viewed the forced Q hairstyle as a symbol of oppression. The god worshippers declined to shave their heads and grew out all of their hair in an act of defiance to the Manchu rulers. Those outside the movement thus referred to them as long hairs. Zhu Quan's radical reforms appealed to many of the rural peasants in the province, and by 1850, the god-worshipping society swelled to well over 10,000 people. As his forces grew, Zhu Quan's preaching became more aggressive. He actively referred to the Manchu-led Qing dynasty as a demonic court led by dogs. Destruction of Confucian literature and Buddhist shrines were celebrated. Zhu Quan ordered every follower to prepare for battle. Army units were organized, and the god-worshippers began to buy, steal, and collect weapons from nearby villages, including swords, spears, and muskets. Chapter 4 A Time for War By this point, members of the imperial court had heard of the god-worshipping society in the White Thistle Mountains but very few people outside of the province knew anything about the society or its strange beliefs. But when the god-worshippers began appearing in the larger cities in the region, local Qing dynasty bureaucrats requested aid. Qing officials sent messages to the god-worshipping society ordering them to disperse. Despite the dreaded imperial seal on the documents, the requests were ignored. By the end of 1850 a local militia arranged by the Qing government began heading south towards the town of Gentian, which now had a sizable faction of god-worshippers. Upon hearing about the encroaching army, the god-worshippers rallied the village of mostly Hakka people to join them in defending their society against the Manchu government from the north. Their combination of fervent preaching and political maneuvering worked, and the villagers aided the god-worshippers in setting a trap for the approaching army. The Imperial forces soon arrived. Poorly regulated, undersupplied, and with little to no intel, the Imperial forces were caught terribly off-guard by the ambush. The forward portion of the Imperial militia was eviscerated. Many of the fanatical rebels, despite never having seen combat, gleefully participated in the massacre. With the advantage of surprise and some brilliant maneuvering by the rebel leaders, god-worshippers were victorious killing thousands of imperial soldiers while losing only hundreds, all while outnumbered nearly three to one. As remnants of the imperial forces retreated north, the god-worshippers pursued, capturing several more towns before finally calling off the chase. The surprise attack was an overwhelming success. Several Manchu generals' heads were placed on stakes and paraded through the town of Jintian. It happened to be Hong Zhuquan's birthday. And buoyed by the news of the victory, he declared himself the Heavenly King of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom of Peace. This God-worshipping society was now officially a theocratic, absolute monarchy. The news of the overwhelming success of the newly declared Taiping Heavenly King's forces spread through the region like wildfire, The Qing dynasty had long ignored the region's request for assistance, repelling bandits and pirates, and had refused to help in dealing with the famines and mass opium addiction. The Manchu bureaucrats in power had levied high taxes, yet were notoriously corrupt and racist in their dealings with the local populace. Now having seen the Qing dynasty try to suppress a new religion only to be humiliated, new followers rallied to the Taiping Kingdom in droves. Tens of thousands of people cut their long queues and headed to join a new kingdom that would hopefully turn out better than the last. Many criminals decided to join the movement as well. Dirty river pirates and roguish bandits began arriving and offering their services to the Taiping rebels. Qing power structures in the region collapsed completely, and many imperial officials had to flee for their lives. By the end of 1851, well over 100,000 people had joined the Heavenly King and the Taiping in active rebellion against the Imperial Qing Dynasty. As the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom consolidated power, Hong Xiuquan rewarded his early followers. He gave several loyal men the title of king and granted them each an area to rule. Wei Shenghui, a pawn shop owner who excelled at logistics was now the North King. Feng Yushan, one of Zhu Quan's first converts and an ardent preacher himself, was now the South King. Yang Zhuqing, spy master and self-proclaimed healer who also boasted that he could commune with God the Father, was now the East King. Zhao Shengwei, peasant farmer who claimed to be the mouthpiece for Zhu Quan's older brother Jesus, was now the West King. Shi Dekai a 19-year-old warrior poet who had been instrumental in defeating the imperial militia, was now the Flank King. Zhu Quan's first follower and cousin, Hong Reng was dubbed the Shield King, and he headed south as a prime minister of sorts to try and gain sympathy from the Westerners in Canton and Hong Kong. Chapter 5. Siegecraft to the north in the Hunan province, people were terrified that the Long Hairs would invade at any moment. They had good reason to be scared. The Taiping forces didn't strike while the iron was hot. They made the iron hot by striking. Several groups of Taiping rebels, under the leadership of Zhao Chaoguai, the West King, marched northward into the Hunan province. The small mining towns and fishing villages mostly fell without a fight. Many villagers eagerly cut off their queues and joined the rebel cause. Anyone who opposed the Taiping had already fled to the fortified city of Changsha. Changsha was well defended and filled with Qing soldiers from the Green Standard Army, a loosely regulated police force named for their green banners. The Qing soldiers were more adept at solving civil disputes than participating in actual combat, but they had the advantage of a well-fortified position in the high-walled city. The Taiping forces prepared for a siege. Supply lines to the city were cut and battle lines were drawn. As the weeks passed, the rebel forces continued to train. Instead of raiding and plundering the countryside, as a typical invading force might have done, the Taiping took a more evangelical approach, convincing rural farmers to join their ranks and recruiting local miners to dig under the city walls. It was an ambitious play, but all the tunnels either missed their mark or collapsed. The West King saw morale sag as tunnel after tunnel failed, so he made a risky choice. Seizing a bright yellow Taiping banner, he rode to the front lines, prompting his men to raise a deafening cheer. Hearing the commotion, a Qing soldier manning the wall squinted down and noticed the rider's royal robes. He approached his commanding officer and pointed out an opportunity that would be well worth the use of their precious gunpowder. The West King was confident in his divine protection. He sat boldly astride his rearing horse, leading his men in another war cry when a loud crack resounded across the battlefield. In a startling flash of blood and bone, a cannonball shattered his right shoulder. The Taiping battle standard fell to the ground, and the West King collapsed, his shoulder eviscerated and his left arm rendered useless. The West King, and mouthpiece of Jesus Christ died soon thereafter. When Hong Xiuquan heard of the West King's untimely demise, he called off a siege. However, instead of ordering the Taiping forces to return, he urged them to advance deeper into central China. Bypassing a fortified city was unheard of as a strategy, but it turned out to be a brilliant tactical move. It completely subverted the expectations of the Qing government and extended the reach of the Taiping rebels. Into countryside already sympathetic to their cause. Taiping forces advanced forward over 300 miles in 25 days. By now, men who used to be farmers, miners, and fishermen could rightfully call themselves soldiers. They drilled day and night, even while traveling, and believed wholeheartedly in the Heavenly King's vision. In the winter of 1852, they arrived at the Yangtze River, the third largest river on the planet and a superhighway of valuable trade goods like tea, silk, and porcelain. The soldiers swiftly stole thousands of boats and sailed up the river to surround the city of Wucheng. They found the city center incredibly well fortified, but due to the economic success of the region in recent years, the city itself had sprawled far beyond the walls protecting the urban core. The Qing Dynasty governor ordered every citizen outside the walls to burn their homes, so it couldn't be captured by the Taiping. He also offered a monetary reward for every severed Taiping head brought to him, awarding bonuses for heads with longer hair, since the length of the Taiping soldiers' hair could determine how long they had been involved in the movement. But when wuchang citizens living in the suburban sprawl saw the Qing forces retreat behind the walls of the city center as the Taiping advanced into their neighborhoods, they simply surrendered without a fight. The Taiping leaders were adamant about avoiding a slaughter. They viewed every Qing citizen as a potential member of the Heavenly Kingdom. As a result of their restraint, thousands upon thousands of people living in the outlying neighborhoods of Wuchang cut their queues and joined the Taiping cause. The rebel forces then assembled a large bridge out of thousands of boats to block off the harbor to surround the whole city and cut the Qing forces off from their lifeblood, the Yangtze River. Surrounded on all sides and plagued by the shifting alliance of its suburban citizens, the sprawling trade city of Wuchang fell to the rebels in under three weeks. Chapter 6. The Eastern Flood. With the capture of Wuchang, several million people now lived in the rapidly expanding Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. At this point, with control of a large trading city in the heart of China, Heavenly King Hongshu had a decision to make. He could cross the river and try to take the Qing Dynasty capital of Beijing itself, or he could head east, solidifying control of the Yangtze River and gaining access to the Pacific Ocean and potential Western allies. The Heavenly King was certain the Manchu rulers of the Qing Dynasty would be well prepared for an invasion of their capital, so he ordered his generals to begin a campaign down the Yangtze River. This is widely regarded by historians as one of the worst decisions made by the Taiping. Because little did Zhukuan know, the Qing government was in a state of panic and disarray. Many officers in the Green Standard Army had abandoned their posts and fear and corruption stalled any reaction by the Qing emperor and other Manchu officials. If the Taiping leaders had chosen to take Beijing then and there, fighting would have been over within the year. Instead, Over the course of the next two decades, the war would spill more blood than any before it in human history. As the Taiping rebels moved east along the river, cities fell quickly. Hangzhou, and Qing and Chengtong were all captured as the Taiping Revolution moved down the river like a flood. Led by the North King and the East King, with the Heavenly King following close behind, the rebels made contact with Westerners for the first time. Though the Europeans didn't quite know what to make of this new heavenly kingdom, they happily accepted their offer to buy thousands upon thousands of muskets and cannons. Not only was the army now well-armed, it was growing every single day. By the time the Taiping forces arrived at Nanking, their soldiers totaled more than 700,000 men. The ancient city of Nanking was perhaps the most well-fortified city in the world. Once the seat of the Ming Dynasty before their downfall and replacement by the Qing, Nanking was surrounded by an enormous stone wall, the longest in the world. Enclosing an area of over 55 square miles, it had taken 21 years to build, and used over 200,000 laborers to move 20 million cubic feet of earth and stone. Aside from the huge walls, Complex topography surrounding the city provided a strategic advantage. The northern portion of the city was a defensible harbor on the bank of the Yangtze. On the eastern portion was a mountain called the Dragon's Shoulder, where the tombs of the old Ming emperors lay deep within. Fortresses clung to the sides of the Dragon's Shoulder, which overlooked the ancient city. It seemed insurmountable, but the leaders of the Taiping rebels had a strategy Weeks before their planned arrival at Nanking, they sent spies into the city, disguised as Buddhist monks. Each spy carefully examined a section of the city walls, looking for signs of weakness. Sagging stones, aging battlements, wide gaps between watchposts. Then, once they had identified the most vulnerable points of attack, they waited. As the Taiping army drew nearer by the day, panic spread throughout Nanking, The population of mostly ethnic Manchus began to evacuate the city, hauling as many possessions as they could carry. Hundreds of thousands were trapped inside, though, when the siege forces arrived and cut off all exits. Once the forces were assembled, each spy within the city lit a large fire behind the portion of the wall they deemed most susceptible to attack. Many were arrested for arson, but they all succeeded in their task. The besieging forces outside watched as pillars of smoke rose around the perimeter of the city. The Taiping now knew exactly where to attack. The rebels had brought along several miners from their previous sieges, who at this point could rightfully be called battle engineers. The Taiping put their massive manpower to use, building large tunnels aiming beneath the city walls to the places deemed weakest by their spies within the city. They had obtained plenty of explosives from the cities they had captured along the river, and they blasted their way through the earth below the walls. Several accidents involving premature explosions and flooding from the moats trapped hundreds of Taiping rebels in collapsed tunnels. But in just 13 days into the siege, two tunnels emerged behind the walls of Nanking. Thousands of Taiping rebels emerged from the ground like a swarm of ants. Qing soldiers tried to stop the invading force, but they were overwhelmed and retreated to the garrison. The Taiping troops had heard countless sermons from the Heavenly King that labeled the Manchu as evil demons to be regarded as less than animals. So, they slaughtered them like animals. A huge portion of the besieged population committed suicide before the rebels could even get to them but many pressed their luck and were massacred. The Taiping rebels went door to door, killing every Manchu man on sight. Screams rang out through the gardens as the women and children who didn't commit suicide were dragged out of their homes and rounded up. At the surrounded Manchu garrison, a human wave of fanatical Taiping soldiers washed over any of the remaining defenses. For each attacker killed, another was right behind him, armed with a sword, a spear, or a bayoneted musket. Some Shig soldiers surrendered, only to be immediately executed. Others fought until the bitter end. There was no mercy to be found in the city of Nanking. Over the next day, Taiping soldiers combed the rest of the city looking for survivors. Most homes were totally empty, even vast estates within walled gardens. The next most common sight was the body of a woman hanging from the noose. With the corpses of whole families huddled in a corner, wrists slit, blood pooled beneath them. Any woman and children who were not already dead were led through the streets, filled with the bodies of countless Manchu men, some of whom they recognized. Their shoes stuck to the coagulating blood on the cobblestone streets. Once they were outside the city walls, they were thrown into newly dug pits. Thousands were crowded together in these shallow trenches, close enough that some suffocated. Oil was poured over them as cries of fear and agony and mourning rose up from the trenches. Then, the Taiping troops threw torches into the writhing mass of human suffering, igniting all of the oil-drenched women and children. The flames spread quickly. Around 30,000 civilians were burned alive. The rebels were used to violence, but this this seemed different. The Manchus were demons, of course, so the Taiping troops had been led to believe, but to see them tortured like this was sickening. Some soldiers looked away, while others privately vomited onto the blood-soaked soil outside of the newly conquered city of Nanking. Chapter 7. A Heavenly Kingdom on Earth Heavenly King Hong Xiuquan declared Nanking the Taiping capital. He and his royal advisors entered the city in golden sedan chairs carried by no less than 16 bearers apiece. They were, of course, shielded from the worst sights and smells of the recent massacre. The old governmental palace was chosen to be the location of an even larger heavenly palace, To honor the heavenly king and his celestial court. Taiping laborers went about their work removing corpses and cleaning blood and entrails off the streets. The work would take months. The scene was downright post-apocalyptic. Nearly every single man, woman, and child had either left the city before the Taiping siege, died defending the city, or had been slaughtered afterwards. Nanking was a ghost town Even the hundreds of thousands of Taiping troops and their families couldn't hope to fill each and every house in the vast new capital. Taiping soldiers were judged by the length of their hair, which determined how long they had been loyal to the movement. Using that as a metric, soldiers were allowed into various portions of the huge empty city, where they could pick any home they wanted. Men and women who had been peasants the year before could now choose from various mansions multi-tiered buildings with connected-walled gardens and access to several tranquil lakes and streams. Stray dogs and cats, abandoned during the siege, found new owners. The Taiping flag, a white dragon emerging through clouds on a golden background, was displayed prominently throughout the city. The Taiping people began the work of making the walled heavenly capital their home. This is precisely the moment when the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom stopped being a movement and became a bona fide state, and a powerful one at that. After Nanking fell to the rebels, European powers began to take notice. An 1850s article in the London Review read, quote, The Taipings are no myth, but a power. After ten years of changeful fortune seeming to Europe on the threshold of an empire, sometimes forgotten, They now stand up before us, counting their subjects in the tens of millions, lords of the finest territories in China, of those from which we fill our tables with tea and dress our rooms with silk and porcelain. They hold the Grand Canal and the Yangtze River as their waters, while sitting in the traditional capital of the empire, and so forth shake a menacing hand against the dynasty at Beijing. The Taiping are without a doubt, at present, the most formidable native power in China and all of Maritime Asia." Many Europeans began to regard China as being ruled by two opposing, legitimate governments. The Heavenly Kingdom slowly made its transition from apocalyptic movement to governing body. Over the next several months, the Heavenly King wrote elaborate, colorful decrees on sheets of fine silk, ending each with the royal seal of heaven. These decrees were hung up from the palace walls, and scribes would make copies to be put up throughout the city. The first new rules were the most obvious. All Confucian literature was to be burnt and all Buddhist statues and Taoist imagery were to be destroyed. Later, Christian missionaries downstream from the city would note the abundance of destroyed wooden holy architecture floating in the Yangtze. The next decrees mandated that Taiping society would remain communal and classless, this was consistent with the message Hong Xiuquan had preached on the warpath, but now the challenge was to implement these changes to Chinese society on a grand scale. Some people, especially on the fringes of the Taiping territory, thought shared resources and women soldiers were a step too far. Old taboos die hard. At this point, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom continued to solidify power, the kings under Hong Xiuquan proved masterful when it came to diplomacy and convinced nearby cities to join the heavenly kingdom. The lower tax rate sure helped. The Taiping government even gained the support of some of the connected crime syndicates in China, known as the Triads. As the far-reaching Taiping armies continued to train, nobles in the north grew increasingly worried. So much of the Qing dynasty's economy relied on the Yangtze, and the Grand Canal that connected it to Beijing in the far north, and now Hong Hongzhuquan controlled almost all of the winding river and the canal. The Taiping had the Manchu rulers in the imperial court by the throat, and they showed no signs of stopping. The subordinate kings of the heavenly court devised a two-pronged strategy for defeating the Qing once and for all. One army would cross the Yangtze and march towards Beijing, The other would go west, establishing control over the entirety of the Yangtze and its tributaries. The Qing government had to do something, and fast. Chapter 8. The Empire Strikes Back Zhang Guofan never wanted to be a general, but the Qing emperor kept calling for him to serve. Everyone who was asked to serve as general in his stead had failed spectacularly. So eventually the imperial court sent him a message that read more as an order than a request. Guo grew up in the Hunan province, just north of the area Hong Xiuquan hailed from. He had always been mild-mannered, anxious, and oftentimes quite depressed. And like Xiuquan, he was regarded as brilliant from an early age. But unlike the current leader of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, Zhang Guofan passed the imperial examination where the dreaded test had led Hong Quan down a road of misery that ended in revelation, and instead led Zhang Guofan down a road of academics that ended in bureaucracy. He enjoyed his career for the most part. Spending his days reading and writing in peace was his idea of bliss. When it came to his responsibilities in politics, however, that was a different story. He was attending his mother's funeral when he got the order that he was to be made general. The imperial court was breaching a taboo by interrupting Guofan's mourning, so he knew that he could not refuse. With immense sadness and terror, Zhang Guofan accepted the role of reshaping an entire branch of the Qing dynasty's military. The current state of the Green Standard Army was an unmitigated disaster. Commanders of the decentralized militias were paid in proportion to how many men they oversaw, This inevitably led to local commanders lying about their numbers until they swelled to downright preposterous amounts. Corruption ran rampant as local militia leaders simply hoarded supplies and asked for more and more from the imperial government. Commanders rewarded soldiers based on bribery, favors, and family lineage, not merit. Nepotism ran wild. Soldiers pooled their funds to create brothels, opium dens, and gambling houses. And when it came to actual warfare, soldiers often panicked and fled when typing forces got too close, or they paid drunkards and bandits to take their place when the fighting actually broke out. Troop discipline wasn't the only problem. The Green Standard Army fought with spears, swords, and matchlock muskets. The muskets weren't a terrible weapon, but they couldn't be fired in the rain, and the flash of exploding gunpowder revealed the soldiers' locations at night. And to top it all off, most of the matchlock muskets were well over a century old. In short, the Qing imperial forces in central China had suffered from too much peace and too little prosperity. Zhang Guofan wrote to a friend about the pathetic state of the Green Standard Army when he first arrived, saying, quote, "Even if Confucius himself came back from the dead, he could spend three years and still not manage to correct their evil ways." Unquote. So, Guo decided to scrap the whole thing. He decided he needed a regular volunteer army, not gangs of local militias. He recruited across the Hunan province, a land that was partially taken over by the Taiping rebels. He surmised that soldiers with families and homes nearer the insurrection would be less likely to flee, as they had more to lose from rebel victories. He framed the recruitment on an appeal to tradition. He claimed that the army was built on Confucian principles and was devoted to protecting Chinese tradition. Once he had gathered men, he began strict regimented training with a new ranking system based purely on merit. Despite this new system, he encouraged officers to treat their men like sons, not mere subordinates. General Guofan wanted the fighting force to function like a metaphorical family, not full of literal families that led to corruption like before. The soldiers learned to stay in formation and stand their ground. They focused on close-quarter fighting. And so, the Hunan Army was born. By 1854, it was ready for combat. Marching from the west, General Guofan's troops swiftly retook Changsha and Wuchang from the Taiping. They inflicted few casualties, but effectively split the Heavenly Kingdom in half. Hong Xiuquan's movement was now cut off from the cloudy White Thistle Mountains, from where it began. Zhang Guofan's fears began to dissipate as his soldiers, the men he viewed as sons, won their first victories. Chapter 9. The Promise of a Christian China Meanwhile, Hong Rengan, the Shield King and the de facto Prime Minister of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, was stranded in Hong Kong. He had been in Hong Kong for years studying Christian doctrine and meeting with Westerners. He had tried heading to Nanking through an overland route, only to find his way home blocked by Zhang Guofan's new Hunan army. Imperial patrols now roamed the lands that Taiping had occupied earlier in their movement. Rangan had no other option but to return to Hong Kong and seek an alternate route. Hong Rangan's time in Hong Kong had seemed fruitful, at least at first, He spent most of his time with members of the London Missionary Society. Hong Ring Gan had written several tracts explaining the Taiping branch of Christianity. While describing the religious tenets of the Taiping, he keenly removed some of the more extreme beliefs that could have potentially turned off Westerners to the movement. One of the most prominent missionaries in Hong Kong was a stern-faced Scottish preacher named James Legg. He was held in high esteem throughout the Protestant world, James Legg, who did not lightly praise anyone who was Chinese, described Hong Rangon to another missionary as, quote, the most genial and versatile Chinaman he had ever known, with a fine acquaintance of the Christian truth, unquote. James Legg's daughter wrote in her journal that her father, quote, felt a special affection and warmth of admiration that he gave to hardly any other Chinaman, unquote. Rangon hoped to leverage this relationship to give him more credence in front of Western officials, whose support was integral if the Taiping truly wanted to overthrow the Qing dynasty. Hong Rangon did an effective job of discerning what the missionaries wanted and how to most effectively frame the Taiping Rebellion as their way to get it. The Shield King spoke eloquently and at length about the Taiping Heavenly Court's plans for the future. These plans included broad industrialization, a modern national banking system, an interconnected system of railroads, an efficient postal system, a national newspaper, and a blue-water navy to protect the Chinese coast. The veil to China's lofty aspirations had been lifted. The Westerners were astounded. A Christian China that was friendly to the West suddenly seemed like a real possibility, and the fall of Nanking to the Taiping rebels in 1853 helped Ringan's case, The London Times in 1853 flatly declared that the Taiping Rebellion in China was, quote, in all respects, the single greatest revolution the world has yet seen, unquote. But different perspectives of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom yielded wildly different opinions. A now 35-year-old Karl Marx took a keen interest in the Taiping Rebellion from its early stages. As a correspondent for the New York Daily Tribune, he wrote, quote, "...what is happening in China is not merely a rebellion or hodgepodge of uprisings, but one formidable revolution that demonstrates the interconnectedness of the modern industrial world. The next uprising of the people of Europe, and their next movement for republican freedom and a free economy, may depend on what is now passing in China's celestial empire." While Marx was eager to frame the uprising as one of class struggle and economic inequality, Journalists in the American South, which was now well on its way to secession and civil war, framed the rebellion as that of an enormous slave uprising. A newspaper in the slave port of New Orleans wrote that the war was primarily a racial one, noting the differences between the Manchu and Han Chinese ethnicities. They described the Manchus as the conquering race from the north, rulers of the primitive Han, who they noted, quote, had before this uprising served as quiet, patient, laboring millions who submitted to their Manchu masters with an exemplary gentleness." Unquote. For the people of the American South, the Taiping Rebellion stoked fears of the possibility of an African slave uprising on their own plantations. While trying to find a way back to his cousin and their proverbial celestial kingdom, Hong Hongregan continued meeting with as many missionaries, sailors, and ambassadors as he could. He soon realized, though, that the Christian missionaries who thought so highly of him had only a loose connection to the governments of the countries that they came from. In the military men and ambassadors, Ringan found only empty promises or explanations of tied hands. By the end of his stay in Hong Kong, the Shield King grew increasingly frustrated with the word neutrality. In May of 1858, Hong Ringan again set off for Nanking, eager to rejoin his cousin in the Heavenly Kingdom. Despite his best efforts, he had failed to attain what the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom truly needed most, pledge Western assistance against the Qing Dynasty. The Shield King left Hong Kong with favorable opinions, but nothing more. Chapter 10. The Cavalry after the capture of Nanking, Hong Xiuquan divided his army in two. One force headed back west, up the Yangtze, in an attempt to secure total control of the entire river. The other half of the army, a 70,000 soldier force dubbed the Northern Expedition, began a lightning-quick march on Beijing. The leaders of the expedition banked everything on taking Qing garrisons as they went, so left no supply depots behind them as they marched. Meanwhile, in Beijing, the imperial court was panicking. The Qing leadership was so pessimistic about Beijing's chances that they ordered next year's tax revenue to be sent to Manchuria instead of Beijing, anticipating the city's downfall. They called for all of their Manchu cavalry from the north to come defend the capital, and sent out a force to intercept the encroaching Taiping. When the northern expedition army of around 70,000 men was crossing the Yellow River just south of Beijing, the Qing launched a surprise attack. When about half of the Taiping troops had crossed the broad river, Qing soldiers managed to destroy the Taiping boats, trapping the other half of the invading army on the far side of the river. Since time was of the essence, the Taiping army simply resumed their march north at half-strength. Then winter arrived. As the Taiping forces closed in on the poorly defended Manchu capital, snow began to fall. Many of the Taiping soldiers were Han Chinese from southern China who had never even seen snow before, and they marveled at the falling white powder. As the snow continued to fall, though, the Taiping advance slowed to a crawl. Many of the soldiers didn't even have shoes. The delay was a critical setback, and it cost the Taiping their advantage. Manchu reinforcements made it to Beijing before the attackers. The cavalry had arrived. This large force of Mongol horsemen was led by a mighty man named Singelenquin, a 26th-generation descendant of Genghis Khan's brother. As a full-blooded Mongol who fought only on horseback with a bow and arrow, Singelenquin hated the Taiping. He hated that they were ethnic Han, and he hated that they used cowardly modern weaponry. Singelenquin and his army of horsemen were used to fighting in the harsh climate of Mongolia, and their horses provided a speed that the Taiping could do nothing to defend against. They mounted a counterattack against the Taiping military and forced them to retreat to a small village in a valley about 80 miles south of Beijing, near the Grand Canal. St. Mongol horsemen surrounded the village entirely. The Taiping troops, during the harshest winter that they had ever experienced, watched in bewilderment as the Manchu army began constructing a crude wall around them, made of stone and earth. Singelenquin then ordered thousands of laborers to be brought in for a special assignment. Most walls are for keeping people out or in, but this wall was different. In addition to the wall, the laborers built a series of trenches around the village that connected to the Grand Canal. When the wall and trenches were completed in the spring of 1855, Singelenquin gave the order... To make a breach in the Grand Canal. The water poured into the trenches and slowly flooded the Taiping-controlled city in the valley. After just a few days, the Taiping troops could barely walk through the thick mud. The water level only continued to rise. Soon their dwellings were half underwater. As erosion deepened the trenches, the water level rose faster and faster, the Mongols posted troops atop the walls to pick off the miserable Taiping soldiers within. Anyone who got too close to the walls was shot with an arrow. By this point, the Taiping soldiers had to make a choice of charging the wall laden with archers or drowned in the murky flood waters. Several attempts were made to escape, all ended with dozens of dead men peppered with arrows. The last soldiers of the Taiping Northern Expedition clung to debris or floating corpses. They, too, were soon picked off by archers atop the wall or simply drowned. Their defeat was devastating. Singhelequin had saved Beijing, at least for now, and became an overnight hero of Beijing and the Qing Dynasty. Chapter 11. When Death Comes, It Will Be a Great Blessing the complete and utter destruction of the Northern Army was a mighty blow to the Taiping rebels, but the campaign west was a different story. A new general had been appointed to lead the campaign up the Yangtze, a man named Li Zucheng. Years earlier, when Li was an officer in the Taiping movement, he had been captured by Qing forces and offered mountains of rewards to poison Hong Zhukuan, who he was often in close proximity with. Li stubbornly refused. Eventually, he escaped and made his way back to the Heavenly King, who, having caught wind of Li's faithfulness, promoted him to general and named him the Loyal King. The Loyal King was a tall man, built like a solid oak, and sported a pair of round spectacles. He was paired with Shi Dekai, the young warrior poet known as the Flank King. Another general, and recently crowned king, was a short squat man by the name of Chen Yuching, He had recently been crowned the heroic king for his sheer martial prowess. He had two large moles on his face, one below each eye, which led his followers to call him the Four-Eyed Hound. All three kings were beloved by their troops, and they skillfully began their operation up the Yangtze to defend their trading cities and face Zheng Guofan's new Hunan army head on. Zheng Guofan, reluctant commander of the Hunan army, had finally gathered a large fleet of flat-bottom boats to transport troops down the Yangtze. But even the act of procuring transport vessels had cost him thousands of men's lives from Taiping subterfuge. He wrote to the emperor begging to be punished for his failure. None came, at least not from the emperor. The bookish Guofan was not suited for the warpath. He could barely ride a horse and found it hard to issue commands on the fly, first needing hours of deliberation before arriving at a decision. Chronic stress seemed to sink into Guo Fan's very bones. His anxiety worsened as he read worrisome letters about other small uprisings against the Qing in China, this time from the Muslim minority in the southwest. He was miserable. When he heard that Shi dikai the flank king, was retaking all of the cities he himself had captured months prior, He knew he had to do something. So, he ordered the Hunan army to board the flotillas and begin their advance back down through the Taiping section of the Yangtze. Tens of thousands of his men boarded the boats and began their attack on the Taiping mudworks and shoreline defenses. The current was strong, throwing the Hunan army boats towards the Taiping at incredible speeds. What they didn't know was that the flank king was prepared for this, The Taiping had placed shallow spikes in the water and stretched chains across the river to hold back the attackers. These defenses worked wonders as boats began flipping and colliding with each other as musket fire rained down on them. Soldiers from the Hunan army were tossed into the swift waters of the Yangtze by the hundreds. Thousands of General Guofan soldiers died in the piled mess of flatboats under the barrage of Taiping muskets. It was a crushing defeat. That night, Guofan quietly got into a small fishing boat and headed into the river. His secretary secretly followed him and witnessed the general tying chains around his feet. When guofon leapt into the water intent on drowning himself, his secretary quickly boarded his own boat, paddled out, and grabbed guofon saving him. Zhang Guofan spent the next few days in his tent, hoping his suicide attempt would remain a secret. In a letter to his brother, he spoke of the difficulties of war and the immense sadness that followed the death of soldiers he viewed as sons. The depressed Guofon ended his letter with, When death comes, it will be a great blessing. Chapter 12. Trouble in Paradise By the autumn of 1856, the Taiping living in Nanking had settled into a comfortable life in the capital. The government policies involving a strict separation of men and women had been lifted. Trade guilds had been created for everything from bricklayers to carpenters to tailors, cooks, physicians, firemen, and undertakers. The living situation was downright roomy, with the Taiping population not large enough to fill every house. The less desirable district simply became overgrown with vegetation— as empty Manchu homes fell into various states of disrepair. But the people were happy, enjoying all the amenities the ancient city had to offer. Some Taiping explored Ming tombs deep within the nearby mountain known as the Dragon Shoulder. Others held religious services in a castle called the Fortress of Heaven on the mountain's peak overlooking the city. As taxes and grain tributes poured in, the Taiping rebels lost a little more of their revolutionary edge from years prior. Hong Zhukuan's religious sermons, too, lost some of their previous fanaticism and began focusing on prayer and inner harmony. The South King and the West King had been killed by snipers on the battlefield, but most of the remaining kings, including the North, East, Flank, Yin, Heroic, and Peace Kings, now lived in the Heavenly Palace. The massive compound had buildings inlaid with gold, incense burning at all times, entertainment arranged daily food and drink brought to private quarters. To say the Taiping kings of the heavenly court lived in complete luxury would be understating the complete paradise around them. By autumn of 1856, there were signs of trouble in that paradise. The first issue was a glaring lack of communication. During the military conquest, the kings all lived in close proximity to each other, in muddy tents set up on battlefields and in recently conquered cities. Gone were the days of each and every king nervously staring down at a battle map, deliberating strategy with each other. Nowadays, some of the kings scarcely met with each other at all, and when they did, it was only for very important matters and was often quite brief. This lack of communication bred contempt amongst the heavenly court. While Hong Zhuquan was the unquestioned leader of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, the East King had risen to prominence, and at times, he appeared to wield more power than even the Heavenly King himself. To many, the East King had been having issues for quite some time. He would erupt into fits of delirium, where his voice would change dramatically. The voice emanating out from the East King claimed to be Jehovah, God the Father, and would make specific demands of Hong Zhukuan. In response, Quan bowed and agreed to follow the instructions of his Heavenly and Literal Father, This pattern continued intermittently throughout the years, and to the Taiping's other leaders, it appeared the East King was using his mouthpiece of God the Father status to bypass his position below Zhukuan, his superior. With the Taiping leadership holed up in the capital, God the Father seemed to channel through the East King more and more. Frequently, the voice booming forth from the East King demanded inane punishment for meager transgressions. Per Jehovah's orders, The North King was flogged for a crime committed by one of his lower servants. Shidekai's father-in-law was lashed 300 times for a mere property dispute. One day, the East King had decided to consolidate his power. Through the voice of God, he ordered each of the largest armies out of the heavenly capital. Hong Zhukuan obeyed, but he realized he was losing control of his own domain. Something had to be done about the East King. As the North King and Flank King led their troops out of the city, according to Quan's orders, they received a message sent through the Heavenly King's expansive spy network. Within the secret message, they also found a detailed report of Quan's suspicion that the East King was planning to commit treason and seize the power of the Heavenly Kingdom for himself. At the end of the message was something perhaps more powerful than even the East King's voice of God. The Heavenly Seal... Hongzhuquan. The flank king, despite being quite young, favored diplomacy and a measured response, but the north king, who had grown increasingly frustrated with the east king's demands, eagerly returned to the capital with his forces to put this supposed mouthpiece of god in his place. When he arrived, he immediately stormed the east king's palace. The heavenly king had given strict orders to only target the east king, However, the North King, driven wild with rage, ordered every single person within the East King's palace to be executed. Soldiers flooded the palace and slit the throats of the unsuspecting guards. The North King's soldiers entered the homes and killed families in their beds. Screams of utter confusion rang through the halls as advisors, prostitutes, and servants ran for their lives. Hundreds were slaughtered, including the East King himself. Hong Zhuquan was furious to hear of the massacre, but he knew he had to act fast. The rest of the East King's soldiers, which numbered around 6,000 men, were fiercely loyal to the East King and would surely cause problems when they heard of the slaughter. So, the Heavenly King made a plan. As the East King's men have heard what happened to their leader, Hong Zhukuan quickly intervened, stating that the North King would be tortured for what he had done and that every soldier was invited to attend. The soldiers were riled up but eager to see punishment exacted on the North King, so they piled into the palace to watch. They were so enthused to see justice enacted that they didn't feel the need to bring their weapons. Once all of the men loyal to the East King were crowded into the palace grounds, the doors were locked behind them. When the doors were reopened, soldiers loyal to the North King and the Heavenly King, forced their way in and slaughtered the unarmed soldiers loyal to the East King. All 6,000 were butchered in the palace yard. By this point, the flank king, Shidekai, and his massive army of over 100,000 soldiers arrived back at the capital. When Shidekai heard of the massacres and deception, he was furious he passed the large patches of recently spilt blood on his way to confront the other Taiping leaders. In the Heavenly Court, the Flank King condemned the North King's actions and demanded something be done about it before storming out. The North King warned the Heavenly King that the Flank King must be a traitor. That night, the North King raided Kai's dwelling in the city and murdered everyone inside. But it turned out the Flank King was not there. He had elected to sleep outside the city walls with his officers, so only his family and servants were all killed. Shidekai was justifiably furious and began preparing to take out the North King and his forces. However, the Heavenly King had a spy among the North King's bodyguards. That spy found an opportunity and that night stabbed the North King in the back. With the North King dead, the flank king Shidakai was given complete control of the entirety of the Taiping forces. This time of betrayal and backstabbing came to be known as the Tianjing Incident. The death toll, consisting mostly of civilians, numbered around 27,000 men, women, and children. The timing could not have been worse. Chapter 13. Gunboat Diplomacy It wasn't just the Taiping who had fallen on rough times. The Qing forces faced yet another threat to their sovereignty. In 1856, the British Empire decided that they had enough firepower to force a renegotiation of their deal with the Qing dynasty. A fleet of British steamships made their way up the Yangtze, armed to the gills with firepower, and hundreds upon hundreds of Royal Marines, many veterans of the recent Crimean War. A sizable retinue of American and French diplomats and soldiers were allowed along for the ride too, also eager to renegotiate their respective parts of the treaty. Upon seeing the minuscule Chinese boats they surged past, the English leader of the expedition noted that his fleet was, quote, a triton among minnows, unquote. The men knew very little of the Taiping uprising and saw only grisly, leftover evidence of its existence. The Western men, clutching their rifles, would often look over the side of the steamboat to see corpses and broken Buddha statues floating amongst bright blue bioluminescence. Dead men and dead gods floating downstream in the illuminated water made the heavenly kingdom they were traveling through seem all the more foreboding. However, the Western powers did not ally themselves with the Taiping rebels. British Parliament, in their late imperial wisdom, did not want to get directly involved in another land war in Asia. The steamship captains were given strict orders to not communicate with the Longhairs. Hearing rumors of the enormous size of the Taiping forces, the crew kept a watch on the southern shore of the Yangtze. However, they never saw many Taiping troops for the vast majority were currently involved in the civil war within a civil war, in the heavenly capital of Nanking. The western forces soon arrived at a Qing fort on the river that they planned to use as a beachhead. This fort was called a Taku fort, and was filled to the brim with troops under the command of Tsingilenquan, who had previously defended Beijing against the Taiping's northern expedition years prior. The Qing dynasty was hoping Tsingilenquan could defend the Manchu capital once more, this time against the British. When the steamships got within range, they began their barrage of cannon fire. The initial volley did visible damage to the fort's palisades. The Qing Dynasty soldiers in the Taku forts returned fire. Their cannonballs flew over the water and landed about a hundred feet in front of the British vessels. The Manchu gunners changed their aim in an attempt to increase their range, but no matter what they did, their cannonballs landed right in front of the western steamships. Knowing that they were completely out of range of the fort's weaker artillery, the British continued their barrage. Every ten minutes, a single cannonball was fired at the fort. Each time, it did significant damage. All through the night, the cannons continued their symphony, with ten-minute intermissions between each shot. With each boom, the Royal Marines struggled to sleep. The Qing soldiers struggled to survive." Singelenquin, still mounted on his horse in the fort, fumed. His defenses were being obliterated, and there was not a thing he could do to stop it. Cowardly men using cowardly weaponry were getting the best of him. When the walls began crumbling around him from the steady barrage of cannon fire, the furious Mongol general ordered a retreat. The British entered their fortified beachhead as the battered Qing soldiers fled into the countryside. The Western forces soon began their march north to Beijing. When they arrived, the Qing dynasty sent out a diplomatic party to discuss negotiations on the outskirts of the city. Tensions were high, and instead of coming to a peaceful agreement, the Qing negotiators captured the Western diplomats, including many British officers and journalists. The remaining men of the Anglo-French forces were furious and began their advance on the capital to rescue their captured comrades. The opposing forces met on a bridge across a series of canals called the Eight Mile Bridge. On one side stood Syngelinquin with his elite Mongol cavalry. On the other sat the finest high-caliber cannons the British had to offer. The proud Mongol cavalry rushed the French and British troops. Panicked artillerymen loaded their cannons. As the Qing dynasty horsemen drew closer, the British cannons erupted with smoke and fire. The elite cavalry was reduced to piles of gore. Wave after wave followed, each met with a barrage of cannon fire. Cannonballs tore through flesh and bone, cutting through three, four, or five men each before stopping in a horse's chest or in a caved-in breastplate. A pink mist hung heavy in the air. Soon the mounted Manchu troops could barely urge their horses over the piling mass of dead and dying men. Qing soldiers slipped on the blood. In the face of complete carnage, the Qing dynasty forces scattered. After clearing the bodies, the western forces crossed the bridge and approached Beijing. News of the defeat reached the city. Secretly, under the cover of night, Emperor Zhang Feng fled the capital with his retinue and headed for an old imperial hunting lodge to the north. The emperor's younger brother, Gong, Was left behind and tasked with the difficult job of negotiating with the Anglo French forces at the capital's doorstep. Negotiations were once again fierce. The Western negotiators demanded the prisoners be released, while the Qing dynasty held tightly to their only remaining bargaining chip. Eventually, the English negotiators pointed to explosives being set up on the walls of Beijing. Faced with that last bit of leverage, Prince Gong allowed the foreign troops into the city. The British soldiers were taken to the Ministry of Justice, where the captured diplomats, officers, and journalists were purportedly being held. What they found infuriated them. Of the 34 men captured, only 14 had survived. The other 20 had been tortured using a method called slow slicing, also known as death by a thousand cuts. It is what you think it is. Their bodies were so eviscerated that their corpses were unrecognizable. The western troops were furious. The fuming commander glared out at the nearby Summer Palace, the ancient city within a city, the Emperor's Funhouse. He sighed and gave the order, burn it to the ground. Thousands gathered to witness the devastation. Lights danced in the onlookers' eyes as they stared at the flames rising from the Summer Palace. Of course, the summer palace was now nearly empty, as much of the imperial court had fled north with the emperor. It had already been looted. Everything that wasn't too heavy to move or too difficult to hack off with a machete was taken. Silver bars, fine silk, priceless artifacts, all loaded into carts to be taken back to Europe. Some of the artifacts were over 3,000 years old, and many still remain in museums in Europe to this day. After the pillaging and plundering, thousands of European soldiers coordinated the lighting of fires in the Summer Palace. Exquisite halls, pavilions, temples, galleries, bridges, and gardens all went up in flames. Many maids and eunuchs, those not deemed important enough to flee with the others, remained in the Summer Palace. They locked themselves in closets and basements, trying to hide from the invaders. Several hundred died during the blaze. For days, the fire continued as an area eight times the size of Vatican City burned. You could see the flames for miles, and many watched as the city within a city, a world within a world, burned to the ground. The ashes of the Summer Palace fell upon the Qing capital. A young officer in the Royal Engineers by the name of Charles Gordon wrote this in his journal, quote, We went out, and after pillaging it, burned the whole place destroying, in a vandal-like manner, most valuable property, which could not be replaced for millions. We got upwards of 48 pounds apiece prize money. I have done well. The local people are very civil, but I think the grandees hate us, as they must after what we did to the palace. You can scarcely imagine the beauty and magnificence of the places we burnt. It made one's heart sore to burn them. In fact, these places were so large, and we were so pressed for time, that we could not even plunder them carefully. Quantities of gold ornaments were burnt, wrongly considered as brass. It was wretchedly demoralizing work for an army. Unquote. This is far from the last that you will hear of Charles Corden. After the fires had burned out, the Europeans placed a placard on the gates that led to the ashen wasteland that used to be the Summer Palace. The placard read, quote, This is the reward for treachery and cruelty." The feelings of the residents of the occupied Beijing were mixed. Some welcomed the Westerners, hoping to gain an upper hand with the British if they decided to treat China as a puppet government as they had India. But many loathed the foreigners, thinking up ways of assassinating them in their sleep. News soon spread that the Emperor himself had fled the capital. Confidence in the Qing Dynasty had fallen to an all-time low. St. Galenquin was stripped of his noble titles after his disastrous cavalry charge and complete failure to utilize gunpowder in his defense of the city. A dejected Prince Gong signed the treaties put forward by the British and French diplomats. The Qing dynasty formally caved to all Western demands, including allowing foreign diplomats to reside in Beijing and effectively legalizing the opium trade. And just like that, The Western forces returned from whence they came, leaving destruction, fear, and uncertainty in their wake. Chapter 14. Homeward Bound In the Taiping's perfect scenario, they would have negotiated a deal with the Westerners and joined them in their conquest of the Qing capital. But the Tianjing incident had happened at the worst of all possible times, and the Taiping leaders were still getting on their feet after the massacre. The Qing capital had burned and the emperor had fled, but the leaders of the heavenly capital weren't faring much better. It was into this political maelstrom that Hong Gan, the shield king, now re-entered. For the past few years, Hong Gan had been doing everything he could to find his way to the heavenly capital, to no avail. He tried creating intricate disguises and aliases to sneak through Qing territory, but he never made it far. Eventually, he used his limited medical knowledge he had acquired in Hong Kong to help a Qing officer's son return to health. Under the good graces of that Qing officer, Hong Ringgan was able to travel with the Imperial troops. But even with the frequent skirmishes with the Taiping Longhairs, Ringgan never found an opportunity to cross over into Taiping territory. Eventually, Hong Rangan gathered supplies and posed as a merchant and crossed into Taiping territory through a rarely-traveled backwoods path. He was soon captured by Taiping forces who interrogated him relentlessly. Through intimate knowledge of the Celestial Court and smuggled documents that loosely proved his identity, Hong Ringon was able to convince the rebel soldiers that he was, in fact, the cousin of the Heavenly King. Ringan, the Shield King, arrived at Nanking, the heavenly capital, in April of 1859. Hong Xiuquan, the heavenly king, was overjoyed to see his long-lost cousin. A ceremony was held where Hong Ringan was granted many more regal titles in addition to that of the Shield King. The ever-perceptive Ringan could sense the growing jealousy amongst the other lesser kings and did his best to refuse some titles and not appear prideful. However, he was eager to share the bountiful knowledge he had gained from the denizens of Hong Kong over the years. In a massive memorandum, completed less than a month after his return, the Shield King laid out plans to rapidly modernize the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Post offices, building codes, factories, paper currency, invention patents, life, fire and property insurance, licensure for doctors, manufacturing plants, the list went on and on. Zhuquan and the other kings of the Heavenly Court were impressed, if not bewildered, by all the proposals. All were met with acceptance, but they agreed that to officially implement the Shield King's reforms, they would have to have a majority agreement from all of the Taiping kings. Because most of the Heavenly Court was off leading armies against Qing forces, Rangan's plans went from practical reforms to be instituted immediately to mere lofty goals for the future. Hong Ringgan soon settled into life in Nanking. He realized that his skills in diplomacy and negotiating had been sorely missed in the Heavenly Capital in the last few years. He heard of dreadful interactions with Westerners resulting from shoddy translation. He learned that Hong Xiuquan refused to actually meet with foreign dignitaries, instead tasking a lesser Taiping king with delivering his messages written on silk in colorful ink. But now, the Shield King provided a breath of fresh air for foreigners visiting the heavenly capital. He spoke perfect English and was familiar with Western cultural practices. Instead of a bow, he would greet British, French, or American visitors with a firm handshake and a smile. Wide-eyed missionaries whose steamships had passed thousands upon thousands of corpses found comfort in Hong Kong, and many considered him a Protestant brother. Relations began to improve with any foreigner who entered Nanking. The Shield King operated as the prime minister that the heavenly capital so desperately needed. He managed to make a deal giving British free and open access to Nanking and the length of the Yangtze. The British then agreed to place a large gunboat in the Nanking harbor to protect British trading interests. Rangon himself tried to buy a steamship for the Taiping, but the British always declined. It turned out that the British naval supremacy on the river was worth more than any riches the Taiping could offer. Despite being busy, the Shield King still found time to walk amongst the ghostly, overgrown expanse of the ancient capital. Birds sang in the old sections of the city that were already being reclaimed by nature. As he walked along the shore of the lake or through the blossoming gardens, he maintained a steadfast hope for the future of the heavenly kingdom. However, Hong Rengon slowly grew frustrated with his cousin's lifestyle. By this point, Hong Zhuquan required all of his servants to be female and rarely left the comfort of his palace. The Heavenly King began giving out titles like candy. The Blessed King, the Sacred King, the Humble King, the Providing King, the Righteous King. Soon the Celestial Court became so clogged with kings that Hong Zhuquan's son, Tiangufu, the Heavenly Prince, would become confused, frequently mixing up their titles. These newly crowned kings felt honored enough to act on their own accord, which made Hong Rangan's job of planning and coordinating that much harder. Despite Hong Rangan's best efforts, some foreign dignitaries wished to communicate with the Heavenly King himself. He did his best, but frequently found himself in difficult situations, negotiating deals and interpreting on the Heavenly King's behalf. At one point, a group of missionaries wanted to discuss theology with the Heavenly King. They sent the verse of Scripture, John 3.16, which reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. They later received a message on silk from the Heavenly King. Hong Zhukuan had rewritten the verse verbatim, then crossed out the word only in Only Begotten Son, since he knew himself to be literally the younger brother of Jesus. Hong ringon could tell that the Taiping theology made the missionaries uneasy, but he did what he could to quell their fears. It seemed that the Shield King was an apt title, as he was having to shield his cousin from quite a lot. In mid-1860, an old familiar face showed up at the doorstep of the heavenly capital. It was none other than Issachar J. Cox Roberts, the wispy-haired Southern Baptist reverend who had declined to baptize Hong Zhukuan all those years ago. Reverend Roberts was welcomed with open arms, and was even allowed to stay on as a Western religious advisor for the Celestial Court. While the still strange reverend was kept at arm's length by the Taiping leaders, he was essential in providing good press for the Taiping cause. While he had confusion and complaints about some tenets of the Taiping faith, His letters were often published in British newspapers, portraying the Taiping uprising in a good light. Most of Reverend Robert's writings were read by Europeans in Shanghai, which happened to be the next step of the Taiping campaign. If Hong Ringgan's plans for a massive Taiping blue-water navy were to become realized, they would have to conquer the Pacific port of Shanghai. Chapter 15. The Comet The summer of 1861 was a time of strange astrological omens. In the northern hemisphere, an enormous comet slowly blazed across the night sky. At the same time, five planets aligned, forming an ominous string of pearls in the night sky. Subjects of the Qing dynasty watched the comet and the rare planetary alignment in fear, worried that their emperor would not return to them After fleeing from the Western invaders. Their fears were soon realized. In August of 1861, Emperor Zhang Feng died in the lodge of the old Manchu hunting grounds that he had fled to after the attack by Western forces. He was a mere 30 years old. He died of tuberculosis or something of the like. It mattered little. To almost everyone in the humiliated Qing dynasty, the young emperor had died of shame. General Zhang Guofan was shattered. He wrote this in his journal upon hearing the news. Quote, Heaven has collapsed, and the earth is split open. My Emperor, from the time he had come to the throne until today, over the course of the last twelve years, never knew a single day that was not consumed by worry over our dangers. Now the long hairs have begun to weaken, and it looks as if the war is reaching a turning point. But my emperor did not live long enough to hear report of my victories, so his dejection and melancholy will follow him into eternity. What a terrible agony for myself and his ministers." The untimely death of the emperor bode ill for the entire dynasty, as the ruler's health and longevity were a clear reflection of heaven's happiness with the current regime. The Qing dynasty's legitimacy could now be openly questioned. To make matters worse, Emperor Zhang was nearly infertile. Despite being attended to by 18 concubines and wives over the years, the monarch had only fathered a single son. That heir was, at the time of the emperor's death, only five years old. The Taiping were overjoyed to hear of the Manchu ruler's demise. The Shield King quickly went to work producing propaganda celebrating the death of the Qing emperor. In one venomous tract, Hong Hongringgan wrote... "...Zhang Feng, the demonic imbecile, was a gambler and a drunkard. He exhausted the treasury, squandering it like sand. His summer palace was resort of debauchery, in which he even founded a male section for sexual perversion. Now that resort has become a pile of ashes, and the emperor himself has fallen into hell. The little demon left behind will find it difficult to continue this fiendish rule." This is precisely the time for us to seize the opportunity to uphold heaven and render ourselves not unworthy in our role as heroes of the world. Unquote. The comet that streaked across the sky bode ill in other areas of the world as well. In North America, it hung over a fractured Union. Each month, more and more states rejected the election of Abraham Lincoln and seceded from the Union. That summer, the U.S. Civil War began in earnest. These enormous upheavals in North America and China terrified the leaders of England. The empire relied on the stability of their commercial interests overseas, and the United States and China were two of their largest markets. Parliament chose to recognize the legitimacy of the Confederate States of America in order to ensure the continued import of cotton from the American South. But an inevitable union blockade soon dashed their hopes of economic stability there. Across the world... Britain and France maintained their neutrality in the Taiping Uprising, but they knew they couldn't remain uninvolved for long. Too much was at stake. At some point, they would have to intervene in one of the two conflicts and create stability once more. But where? Parliament debated fiercely over which war to involve themselves in, and if so, which side to even support. The justifications for any course of action were political, religious, economic, and moral. In the American Civil War, the Union had been a solid ally for years, but the Confederacy produced the cotton English mills so desperately needed. In China, the Taipings were a new Christian kingdom that held more precious territory, but the Qing Dynasty was more ancient and had already signed an incredibly lucrative treaty with the British. On and on Parliament debated. But their predicament would be decided for them on the walls of Shanghai in the summer of 1861. Chapter 16 The Battle of Shanghai. Li Zuchang, the loyal king and grand general of the Western armies, adjusted his spectacles. His army had marched from the heavenly capital at Nanking, taking every mining town and fishing village on the way. Most simply opened their gates. The Taiping fighting force, well over a hundred thousand strong, was now camped a few miles outside of Shanghai, the shining sea of the Pacific just beyond the port before them. could smell the salt and brine. While the harbor would be a crown jewel essential in the Taiping campaign, the city itself betrayed its value. Haphazardly organized, malaria-ridden, and caked with mud, Shanghai was far from a model metropolis. Houses were stacked upon each other like an unorganized bookshelf, and the winding streets were filled with criminals, pirates, and as of late, hundreds of thousands of Qing refugees, eager to sleep behind any wall that separated them from the long hair rebels. One young American sailor wrote in a letter to his mother, quote, The place swarms with Californians, Negro minstrels, gamblers, and horse jockeys, and the worst of both sexes fill the streets. The place promises in a short time to become the next San Francisco in its early days. Unquote. The city was crudely sectioned off into the Old Historic District, the American Embassy, the French Quarter, the English Consulate, refugee slums, and the snaking harbor where ships danced between piers and palisades. All of the competing jurisdictions proved lucrative for any shady networks and criminal enterprises. However sinister the city seemed, it was still essential for the Taiping's greater military plans. The loyal king sent messengers into the city they were not to report to the Qing officials or criminal lords, but to the embassies of England, France, and the United States. The message they had for the Western diplomats and troops was this, we mean you and the other Europeans in Shanghai, no harm. In the message, they explained that they sought to overthrow the Qing dynasty and continue their good relations with the West. The message instructed any Westerners or Western allies to hang a piece of yellow cloth over their doors. When the Taiping army entered the city, they would do no harm to any home with a yellow cloth above the door, just like the Angel of Death did no harm to the Israelites during the Passover. The Western leaders met quickly to determine whether they would remain loyal and support the Qing, or allow their ally to be overthrown by the Taiping. Little did they know that thousands of miles away, Parliament was debating the exact same thing. With news from their mother country taking months to arrive, the men were still in the dark. Parliament could have already arrived at a decision, but it was still on the boat to get to them. Their only current orders were to maintain Western neutrality, but that word provided them little direction in their present situation. There were hundreds of thousands of Qing refugees in the city, and many of the Westerners feared that they would be slaughtered if England and France did not defend the city against the Longhairs. Others argued that they should hand the city over to the Taiping, as they were technically their Christian brethren, who were at that moment printing Bibles and spreading their same gospel. This claim was disputed, and the conversation shifted from strategic to religious. So, the Westerners remained deadlocked. Some ordered their troops to be on guard, while others secretly directed their family and friends to place yellow cloth above their doors. While the official European powers were undecided, another Western force was ready to give the advancing Taiping army a fight this rogue contingent was brazenly called the Ever-Victorious Army, led by the American Frederick Townsend Ward. Ward was a sailor and mercenary, with a complexion as dark and stormy as the Massachusetts port he hailed from. He was so rebellious and troublesome as a youth that his father sent him away on a ship when he was a mere teenager. He was daring and reckless, and often infuriated older sailors that he worked with. He studied at a military academy for a time, but always found his way back to adventure. In 1852, while working on a dangerous cargo mission in Central America, Ward met a man named William Walker, who would fund and lead private armies in hopes of carving out land to rule in exotic locales. This sort of unauthorized military conquest was called filibustering, and the excitement it offered was too enticing for the reckless Frederick Townsend Ward to pass up. So, He joined William Walker on a quest to establish American colonies throughout Central and South America. Sometime in the early 1850s, Ward split with William Walker, seeking adventure elsewhere. By 1860, Ward had had his fun in the Crimean War and now sought conflict somewhere more lucrative. When he heard about the Taiping Rebellion, he knew he had stumbled onto the jackpot. He first arrived in Shanghai, hoping to help the fledgling Taiping overthrow their Manchu masters, but he changed his mind upon meeting a local Shanghai banker named Yang Fong. Fong, with an eye for talent, first offered to pay Frederick Townsend Ward to defend Qing riverboats from Taiping assaults, and soon began paying him to protect Shanghai business interests in general. The wealthy banker paid an absurd $100 per month per man. Ward quickly recruited men for his new illegal fighting force. Soon he had several hundred men, Alcoholic Confederate soldiers, Filipino migrants, British marines who had jumped ship. Many of the men were 49ers, gold diggers who didn't strike it rich in California, so decided to become mercenaries. The motley crew dressed in a hodgepodge of uniforms from nearly every faction of the Shanghai society. While the fighting force was chock full of deserters, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and drunkards, it did boast some of the best firepower that their wealthy banking patron could provide cornucopia of modern cannons, repeating rifles, Colt revolvers, and high-powered explosives were all at Frederick Townsend Ward's disposal. Without ever fighting an actual battle, Ward named his few hundred fighting men the Ever-Victorious Army, and with the Taiping advancing on Shanghai in mass, he was ready for his first real showdown. He ordered his men up to the ramparts. Despite not hearing back from the western dignitaries that they had reached out to in Shanghai, the Taiping army advanced as if it had already conquered the port city. However, upon arriving, the Taiping standard bearers and regular troops were promptly mowed down by the ever-victorious army who cared little about conserving ammunition. The loyal king, quite confused, ordered his men to retreat. He couldn't imagine why his American and British brothers in Christ would fire upon his men so he promptly blamed the French, as they were primarily Catholic. Over the next few weeks, Frederick Townsend Ward's ever-victorious army killed Taiping scouts and sniped Taiping officers from afar. The tone of the loyal king's messages to the Western leaders in Shanghai became more overtly threatening, despite warnings from the ever-diplomatic Ring God. The Westerners inside Shanghai finally responded, declaring a 30-mile radius outside of Shanghai as an exclusionary zone. The Taiping could come no closer until the diplomats received word from their respective legislative bodies back in Europe. A fierce debate ensued among the Taiping Celestial Court about whether the problem of Shanghai was an issue of diplomacy or warfare. While they argued, the Taiping Army waited in their fortifications. Their paralysis proved disastrous. It began snowing on January 26, 1862. It did not stop for three full days. The Yangtze River froze solid. The Taiping, many without cold weather clothes, some even without shoes, found themselves covered in feet of snow. They ripped apart buildings and local villages for mere firewood. Thousands died of exposure. The loyal king wrote a letter to the heavenly king, laconically stating that it was too cold to even move. For the second time in the war, winter devastated the Taiping forces. In the spring, the ever-victorious army renewed their assault on the severely weakened loyal king and his men. Towns in the 30-mile exclusion zone became the sites of brutal urban warfare, their homes frequently hosting conflicts between Taiping scouts and the ever-victorious army. In the summer of 1862, Hong Xiuquan finally called off the invasion of Shanghai, insisting that his cousin the Shield King could solve the problem diplomatically, without military confusion added to the mix. In September of 1862, the ever-victorious Army's commander, Frederick Townsend Ward, was shot in the stomach during a skirmish between his soldiers and a Taiping encampment. He had been shot many times throughout his exploits, a fact he boasted about frequently, but this wound proved to be his undoing. He died as he lived, covered in blood yelling something about a late mercenary payment. He was 30 years old. A few men succeeded Ward as leaders of the ever-victorious army, but none of them lasted long. One was outright inept, accidentally blowing up his own steamship. Another had ambitious plans to use the ever-victorious army to straight-up take Beijing and name himself Emperor. That didn't really pan out. Eventually, it was the Englishman Charles Gordon who assumed command of the ragtag force of a thousand fighting men. You may remember him from his mournful account of the burning of the Summer Palace back in 1860. Gordon wore only Chinese garb and spoke with a thick lisp. He was brilliant and beloved by the men he led, including Chinese soldiers. He was known for treating the locals with an immense respect, and the local press soon dubbed him Chinese Gordon. He lacked the reckless daring possessed by Ward, but his measured approach proved invaluable in his new role, assisting General Zhang Guofan's army. Chapter Seventeen: Turning Tides. With the Taiping attacking Shanghai, and in the eyes of the West, their consulates and embassies. Britain had officially pledged their support behind the Qing Dynasty. A huge reason being that they had already had a lucrative treaty with the current Manchu rulers, one that required a full-on war to even get signed. Back in Britain, industrial shipmakers were delighted to have the Qing Dynasty's business. They quickly went to work constructing a modern fleet for their new imperial allies. Once completed, there were eight ships, each armed with 40 state-of-the-art cannons, crewed by over 400 English sailors and marines. The steamers had a top speed of over 20 miles per hour, making them the fastest ships on the planet. The Qing dynasty had never needed a naval ensign flag before, so a British shipwright invented one for them, a green and yellow flag with a dragon in the center. The fleet was formerly called the Anglo-Chinese Flotilla, but for the Taiping who loathed seeing Britain play mercenary for the Qing, it had another name, the Vampire Fleet. The Western allies joining the fray on the side of the Qing Dynasty may have been the turning point in the war, but the Taiping had been losing territory for quite some time. Hundreds of miles to the east, the flank king, Kai still had a decent-sized army that was fighting across central China. However, his army could never hold a major settlement without risking the flank king's army's greatest strength, its lightning-quick mobility. So, the Eastern Expedition continued its wandering, unable to levy taxes, or store grain, or gain any permanent victories. The young flank king remained a poet through and through, composing many works of poetry that he often read to his fiercely loyal troops. However, without remaining in any territory for long, troops on the edge slowly began to leave their posts. Desertion drained the eastern Taiping forces, drip by drip. As the Taiping Eastern Army continued to shrink, the flank king realized what he needed to do to prevent the inevitable. The flank king looked to his most loyal officers with a heavy heart. These were men who had fought by his side for nearly a decade. They had broken bread together, composed poetry together, fought and died together. He couldn't bear to see them inevitably slaughtered. He knew there was no way he could return to Nanking and the heavenly king he so loyally served. Even if he could make it there, his force was probably not strong enough to break through the enemy siege lines. In an effort to save his officers, the flank king surrendered to Qing forces in June of 1863. He merely walked into town one day and turned himself in. The dumbfounded Qing soldiers fumbled with their weapons as the kind-faced man told him that he was, in fact the flank king of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. The flank king had prepared by first ordering his five wives to commit suicide, but not before they drowned all of his children. He then told the few thousand regular troops to return to their homes and do what they could to avoid punishment by the Qing dynasty. With tears in his eyes, he told the soldiers to not forget what they had learned with the Heavenly Kingdom, even if publicly expressing Christian beliefs would surely be punishable by death. Thousands of Taiping troops mournfully cut their long hair and scattered to the winds. His loyal officers, nearly 2,000 of them, refused to leave. The flank king said he hoped he could ransom their lives by turning himself in. He was wrong. A few days later, they were all promptly rounded up and slaughtered. Upon hearing of the death of the flank king and the eastern army's demise, Hong Zhukun stated that this was all merely God's will that they had served the heavenly kingdom and fulfilled their purpose. The Taiping weren't just losing territory either. By 1863, the Taiping were losing the PR battle as well. The moneyed men in Shanghai had a monopoly on the foreign press and made sure that the Taiping were always portrayed as cruel devils. Any story that showed the Taiping in a good or even neutral light was quickly axed. By this point, Westerners in Europe didn't seek complexity or nuance they just wanted to know who to root for. The Taiping still counted an ally in their resident Baptist preacher Issachar Roberts, but even his support was beginning to wane. During this time, Hong Zhukuan's theology became even more radical. He asserted with confidence that the Holy Trinity was real, but that the Holy Spirit wasn't. His heavenly seal was changed to reflect this. All royal documents were now stamped with the approval from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Heavenly King. This was a step too far for many foreign dignitaries and missionaries. The theological straw that broke the camel's back drove some of the Taiping's last religious allies away, and many left the Heavenly Capital for good. One night, after an apparent fight with the Shield King, where Hongringgan may or may not have brandished a sword, Reverend Roberts left the Heavenly Capital for good. He wrote in a letter that the Taiping were, quote, hell-bent on making their burlesque religious pretensions serve their political purposes." Upon arriving in Shanghai, he faced constant ridicule. He was often mockingly referred to as, Your Grace, the Archbishop of Nanking. For the press, his mistreatment was considered poetic justice for misleading the public about the Taiping for all those years. With the departure of Reverend Roberts, the Taiping had lost their one and only remaining Western residential ally. The last foreign missionary arrived in late spring of 1863. He reported that Hong Rangan was quite friendly, but visibly stressed. He also stated that the Heavenly King had issued a proclamation commanding the Taiping to begin farming within the walls of the city. Typical behavior for those expecting a siege. Chapter 18 Siege of a Ghost Town. General Zhang Guofan, with the help of new Western officers from the ever-victorious army, completed the siege of Anqing, which had held out for months through mass starvation, even resorting to cannibalism before they surrendered. But the Qing forces couldn't enjoy their victory for long. Stemming mostly from the unwashed masses of refugees along the Yangtze was a massive outbreak of cholera. The onset of the disease was hard to pinpoint. First came cramps, then diarrhea soon after, pale and milky. They would slowly rip out the insides of the victims. Death came quickly. Thousands died each day. In many villages along the Yangtze, bodies were piled up on the street sides or simply thrown into the murky waters of the river. Bloated corpses became a common sight on the Yangtze. There are even some western accounts of steamships getting stuck on the piles of bodies. The Taiping, most of whom were cooped up in their fortress cities, escaped the spreading of the illness mostly unharmed. The Qing forces, on the other hand, suffered mightily over the course of the outbreak. By the end of the summer of sickness, Zhang Guofan had lost over an eighth of his fighting men. Despite his army being wrecked by cholera, Guofan's forces, bolstered by the ever-victorious army, managed to slowly retake cities on the river and now had a straight shot to the heavenly capital. Zhang Guofon slowly gained confidence as his army continued its advance on the Taiping capital, but his depressive tendencies remained. During this time of military success, Guofon kept extensive journals. He wrote openly about his perpetual sadness. In a letter to his son, Guofon wrote, There is a darkness in my heart, a mourning without cause. If I could just die soon, without being a curse to future generations, it would be a great blessing. Unquote. Despite his inner turmoil, each decision he made as a general proved to be the right one. What Guofon lacked in personal talent, he made up for with his keen eye for talent and others. For one, he hired men outside of the typical pool for officers. He cared little for family lineage or whether or not a man had passed the Imperial examination. He cared about results. He brought on ruthless river pirate captains to help with naval maneuvers, chemists to help with explosives, Western-trained architects to oversee military engineering projects. General Guofon became a master delegator. By 1863, when Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on the other side of the Pacific, the Qing forces now had Nanking completely surrounded. Taiping troops would now have to fight their way in and out of the city any time they needed supplies. They did, for a time, but it soon became too costly and the loyal king and his army of over 100,000 men remained in the heavenly capital. Outside of the mighty walls of the fortified city, people were faring far worse. Grain shortages wrecked rural populations, as most males were off fighting for or against the Taiping. As the Qing army closed in on the capital, it retook large swaths of territory. Taiping sympathizers were punished severely. As Qing troops entered towns that had sided with the Taiping, they killed off entire bloodlines of those who fought for the Heavenly Kingdom. To ease the burden of slaughtering so many civilians, suicide booths were set up in the villages before the army arrived. The small structures were attended by a Qing official, and inside contained placards with information on how to take one's own life. By slicing one's wrist with the provided dagger, using the well-worn noose. After the deed was done, the attendant would remove the body and invite the next person inside. Thousands chose suicide over the inevitable alternative. Wild dogs roamed the desolate wasteland that had been ravaged by war, a war that was nearing its close. Around the time of the flank king's death, the Taiping Celestial Court received intel about the imperial supply lines. They knew payments to officers were running thin, and that if they could just outlast the siege, then Zhang Guofan's army would be forced to disband. Zhang Guofan knew that his enemies knew that he was running out of time. He hoped they didn't know how bad it really was. In Beijing, imperial officials were now selling artwork that had adorned the palace to simply fund the government, Officer payments were being delayed more and more. If Guofon didn't take the Taiping capital soon, his army would dissolve from the battlements like a snowflake in the summer sun. He also knew that the Taiping had taken to farming within the walls. Starving them out might not be an option. Zhang Guofan ordered his troops to take the fortress on top of the Dragon's Shoulder, the mountain overlooking Nanking. His troops took tremendous losses on the small mountain paths, but eventually secured the fortress. From there, Guofan and scouts from the ever-victorious army could peer through spyglasses down at the Taiping in the city. Their worst fears were realized. Vast tracts of land within the walled city were being utilized as farmland. It was obvious, then, that if they couldn't starve the Taiping out, they would have to take the city by force. General Guofan's army constructed massive breastworks and forts. The siege line snaked around the entirety of the walled city. Lacking sufficient artillery to blast through the ancient walls, the Qing forces had to find a way under them. Working in shifts, Qing laborers began digging dozens of tunnels. They dug at a breakneck pace, with nervous officers overseeing the work. Charles Chinese Gordon observed these tunnels himself. He reported that they were deep within the earth and the tunnel shafts were 5 feet wide and 7 feet tall, supported by wooden beams and ventilated with small holes every few dozen feet. He estimated that they burrowed roughly 15 feet through the dirt, rocks, and tangle of vines every day. The Taiping did not sit idly by as the army surrounding them sought a way under their walls. The sentries on the walls located the tunnels by spotting the ventilation holes or noticing where the grass was dying. Once the tunnels got close, the Taiping took action. The Longhair rebels rerouted waterways to drown out the Qing tunnelers. Horrified miners stood paralyzed in shock as the walls around them grew darker with moisture, then turned to mud and collapsed. Hundreds of miners drowned in wet earth. In one instance, the Taiping defenders redirected their sewage towards an oncoming tunnel, which soon flooded with urine and excrement. As the months drug on, the Taiping began running out of food. Strict rationing was implemented by the heavenly court, but even that wasn't enough. The crop yield of their urban gardens was less than they had expected. Hong Rangan, the shield king, sat helplessly in a Taiping outpost to the south. He had a bit of grain, but no way of getting it past the Qing siege line and into the capital. In the spring of 1864, the loyal king entered the heavenly palace with grave news. He reported, quote, There is no food remaining in the whole city, and many men and women are dying each day. I request a directive as to what should be done to put the people's minds at ease. Unquote. Hong Zhouquan appeared entirely unworried. He told his loyal king to remain faithful. He proclaimed that every starving citizen should reread Exodus chapter 16, where God, Xu father, had provided manna as sustenance for the children of Israel when they had wandered in the desert. Manna is scarcely defined in the Bible, but the Taiping Bible translation loosely referred to it as sweetened dew. So like zombies, the starving Taiping began roaming the enormous mostly empty capital, picking grass and weeds in search of this sweetened dew. Even the celestial court was not spared from starvation. Throughout the heavenly palace, the various kings, adorned in fine yellow silk and colorful ribbons, walked the palace grounds in search of food, checking and rechecking the kitchens which had been empty for months. By this point, the Taiping diet consisted purely of grass and tree bark. The capital was now devoid of the usual Christian sermons and worship hymns. A heavy silence hung over the besieged ghost town. Chapter 16 Kingdom Come In the early summer of 1864, almost a year into the siege, Hong Xiuquan fell ill. Many believe the cause of the sickness was the diet of mostly weeds picked from the far reaches of the heavenly palace. He lay for weeks in stomach pain. All earthly remedies failed him. One day, the heavenly king, racked with illness, gave his last decree, written on the usual golden silk He proclaimed that he was going to visit heaven, to plead with his father and elder brother to send an army of angels, a heavenly host, to obliterate the Qing forces surrounding them. Hong Zhukuan, the ingenious peasant who could never pass the imperial examination, who found God, became a king, and brought his version of heaven to earth, died on June 1, 1864 he was buried in a garden in the heavenly palace, wrapped in golden silk, without a casket, as he would soon ascend to heaven. The Taiping mourned, but many remained hopeful that he would return, just as his older brother Jesus had in Jerusalem all those years ago. The third day after the heavenly king's death was the hardest. The starving Taiping, ribs visible, looked up at the sky, awaiting their king's return. He never came. Heaven had fallen silent. In a small ceremony, Hong Xiuquan's eldest son, Tiangufu, the heavenly prince, acquired his father's divine title as the new heavenly king. While the Taiping mourned, some still holding out for Xiuquan's return with a heavenly army of angels, General Guofan's Qing forces were losing faith. They had dug over 30 tunnels trying to reach under the city walls, and all they had to show for it was over 4,000 dead miners. Guofon ordered long-range cannons set up on top of the fortress on the dragon shoulder. These cannons were used to blast away any Taiping soldiers that tried to interfere with the tunnelers. Below the cannons, General Guofon's deepest and most ambitious tunnel grew ever longer. Eventually, that tunnel reached the 50-foot-thick city wall. Guofon, erring on the side of Overkill, packed the end of the tunnel with 20 tons of gunpowder. At high noon on July 19th, they lit the fuse. A battalion of 400 hand-picked veterans, the greatest warriors Guofan's Hunan army had to offer, gripped their swords, ready to plunge into the fray after the walls collapsed. They watched nervously as the lit fuse glittered down into the darkness of the tunnel. The minutes crawled by, as the sparkling fuse burned down to the payload. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of granite and earth erupted skyward, completely enveloping the elite Qing vanguard. A cascade of rubble then hailed down on the Qing and Taiping alike. When the last fragments of debris landed and the smoke cleared, it revealed hundreds of corpses, and a breach in the mighty wall, nearly two hundred feet wide. zanguo Fon's forces stationed on the dragon's shoulder, then charged over the rubble and bodies of their comrades and into the heavenly capital. As the Imperial soldiers plunged into the city, eager to loot and pillage and worse, they found the city eerily quiet. Occasional, thin, sickly corpses were seen upon the ground, which was devoid of all vegetation. The invaders soon made it to the urban center. Taiping families fled in terror while small bands of long-haired soldiers made spirited last stands. Some soldiers, looking down at old maps of the city, beelined for the Heavenly Palace. Qing troops soon swarmed the Taiping guards and opened the gates to the city. Thousands of soldiers flooded into the besieged capital. When they arrived at the Heavenly Palace, they found it completely abandoned. Having heard the explosion, all of the Celestial Court had scattered. General Guofan gave strict orders to his officers to forbid looting and rape. These orders were ignored, and the Qing soldiers slaughtered civilians mercilessly. Screams of men, women, and children echoed through the city as smoke rose from the various fires set by the invaders. After most of the carnage, a massive rainstorm soon enveloped Nanking, washing away most of the blood and ash. But after the heavy rains, the stain of the massacre remained. Zeng Guofon was furious. He did his best to reprimand his officers for the orgy of looting and rape that had taken place over the last few days. But he was also enraged because the young heavenly king, supposed grandson of God himself, was nowhere to be found. Somehow, the young rebel king had escaped Guofon's grasp. He fumed, fearing that the young monarch could somehow re-establish the Taiping movement elsewhere in China. The war would never end. Chapter 20. On the Run It was the loyal king who had masterminded Hong Tiangafu's escape. The new heavenly king, merely 14 years old, wept uncontrollably as the loyal king took him from the arms of his mother. The loyal king had long planned for this contingency. He quickly dressed himself and the young heavenly king in Qing uniforms and got on horses prepared with imperial saddles. As the sun set upon the chaos and debauchery within the city, the loyal king and a few bodyguards, also in Qing disguise, rode through the gates of the city, past the imperial sentries, and into the twilight. The loyal king and the young heavenly king rode through the night. Eventually. The horse the loyal king was riding gave out. He ordered the whimpering king and his few remaining bodyguards to continue riding south in hopes of rendezvousing with the shield king in one of the last remaining cities still under Taiping control. The loyal king bid them farewell and retreated into the countryside. He eventually found an abandoned Buddhist temple overgrown and nearly in ruin, where he collapsed, exhausted. He awoke to rural villagers who recognized him Too exhausted to flee, he remained at the temple until Qing soldiers surrounded it. The loyal king, perhaps the most capable general in the entire Taiping movement, was captured and taken back to the heavenly capital he had fled from. He was led through the streets of the city he had done his best to defend. Piled corpses lined the roadside. Half of the city had been reduced to ashes. Women and children who had been found hiding were dragged out into the street and butchered. The loyal king kept his head down, but even then he glimpsed horrors like infants impaled on pikes, the smell of blood, gore, and smoke hung over the city like a phantom. The loyal king was imprisoned and told to record his confession, and he did. He was open and honest in his account, telling of the Taiping movement and its origins. The imperial scribes listened in fascination as he dictated the fraught history. Of the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom. Eventually, Qing forces assaulted the final cities under Taiping control. Hong Ringgan, the Shield King, guarded the young Heavenly King, who had made it to Huzhou. The last any foreigner ever saw of the Shield King was right after the fall of Nanking. A British mercenary by the name of Patrick Nellis, who had jumped ship from the fearsome vampire fleet to become a mercenary, reported that Hong Ringgan surprised him by speaking to him in English. He asked Nellis what his nationality was. An Englishman, Nellis answered. With a straight face, the tired Shield King replied, I have never met a good foreigner. Soon thereafter, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom collapsed around them. And once again, the young Heavenly King escaped, this time with the help of the Shield King and a motley crew of bodyguards. The ragtag escort survived for three months with little rations and dozens of close calls. But in October of 1864, their luck finally ran out. The group had traveled hundreds of miles and were now hiding out in the foothills, fairly close to the White Thistle Mountains, where the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom was born all those years ago. The attack came at midnight. The imperial scouts were upon them before the last Taiping Loyalists could even don their armor or even mount their horses. The Qing soldiers executed Hong Rangan, the western-educated prime minister and diplomat, the noble shield king, cousin of the second son of God. He never recanted his loyalty to the Taiping cause. But when the attackers looked for the young heavenly king, he was nowhere to be found. Hong Tiangafu had miraculously escaped yet again, alone this time. He wandered in the foothills for days, still dressed in his royal heavenly robes. Terrified, without food or supplies, the young monarch prayed. He must have prayed. Prayed for the army of angels that was promised by his father. Prayed that Jehovah, his grandfather, would somehow save him. Heaven remained silent. After days in the wilderness, Tiangafu stumbled across a small farm in the foothills. The old farmer there, thinking he was a runaway from the war, agreed to take him on as a field hand. The Heavenly King did his best to forget about the Taiping Uprising and his celestial lineage as he struggled to carry Bamboo back to the farm. However, after a few days, Qing's soldiers arrived at the farm and recognized the boy. This time, he did not escape. Tiangafu immediately threw himself upon the mercy of the state. In his tearful confession, He said, "...the old heavenly king told me to study Christian books and would not permit me to study the ancient classics, which he said were all demonic. I managed, however, to secretly read 30 or more volumes, and I retain a collection of their subjects and contents." He told his captors that he had no part in the ambitious conquest ordered by his father. He said that he himself had only one ambition, to quietly study Confucius, and to pass the imperial examinations, his father had always failed. The Qing officials did not grant him this final irony. He was tortured and killed by slow slicing, death by a thousand cuts. Chapter 21 The Emperor Who Could Have Been. Back in Nanking, the loyal king was nearly finished recounting the robust history of his time with the Taiping. The Qing dynasty sent word to Zhang Guofan that the Taiping leader was not to be harmed, but to be taken to Beijing for a formal execution. Zhang Guofan mulled over whether or not he would obey the order. He sat in the remains of the heavenly palace, editing out parts of the loyal king's testimony. To place himself and his personal army in a better light. He finished literally rewriting history before casually ignoring his orders and executing the loyal king. Upon hearing of General Guofan's defiance of their orders, the imperial officials back in Beijing were terrified. At that moment, Zhang Guofan was unilaterally the most powerful man in all of China. The depressed scholar who had several suicide attempts to his name come far. Zhang Guofuan was the de facto military dictator of the largest, most powerful army in all of Asia. He had good relations with the western powers. His soldiers viewed him as a demigod. Privately, his officers and his own brother pushed him to march on Beijing and crown himself the new emperor of China. The Zhang dynasty had a nice ring to it. The western world, too, half-expected Fan to march north and consolidate his immense power. But he didn't. To the tired old scholar-turned-general, the position of emperor over all of China was the most accursed existence he could imagine. In his war-weary eyes, the emperor was not a man to be envied, but a man to be pitied. So, Zhang Guofan gave up his military command. Or, at least he tried the imperial court would not allow him to retire, ever. He oversaw the regional rebuilding of most of central China, and was never allowed to relinquish his post. As his eyesight dimmed and his beard turned white, his depression never left him. He wrote in a letter home that he eagerly awaited his own death, writing, quote, I would be much happier there than I am in this world, unquote. Zhang Guofan died in Hong Zhukuan's heavenly mansion, in 1872. Chapter 22 Ruin. By the end of 1864, every single king of the Taiping Celestial Court had met their bitter end. But small remnants of Taiping resistance groups survived in patches in the foothills of central China their numbers dwindled as the hope that their heavenly king would return with an army of angels slowly faded. But it wasn't until August of 1871 that the last Taiping army led by Li Fuzhong, a student of the flank king, was completely wiped out by imperial forces in the border region of the Hunan province. Over those last years, many Taiping fled south and integrated into Thailand or used their military expertise to aid Vietnamese bands fighting their French colonizers. The sheer destruction in the wake of the Taiping Rebellion is nearly inconceivable. Enormous piles of corpses frequently blocked roadways and clogged the Yangtze River for years. Famines from war-torn areas of upheaval added to the mountains of bodies. The omnipresence of death pervaded all of central China. The economic damage was unprecedented, And even that didn't include the collective psychological trauma the Civil War had inflicted on all involved. Death tolls are nebulous things. Do you count only the deaths of soldiers lost in combat? How do you account for refugees? Are deaths from plagues, famines, and diseases included as well? These are all things questioned and debated by historians to this day. Estimates for the death toll of the entire Taiping Rebellion range from 15 million to well over 100 million. Most widely accepted estimates are around 30 million dead, firmly placing the war as the deadliest civil war of all time and the second deadliest conflict in all of human history. As late as 1913, the Chinese population had yet to recover to its pre-war level. As is so often the case with history, The Taiping Rebellion has been framed from wildly varied perspectives. In 1921, a communist revolution finally overthrew the weakened Qing dynasty. Some of the oldest communist party members came out as Taiping veterans, and they framed the Taiping Rebellion as a proto-communist revolution. Christian missionaries, for their part, either blamed the Taiping for bastardizing true Christianity or blame the West for intervening on the side of the non-Christian Qing dynasty. Many Christians would later mourn the loss of a hypothetical Christian China. One such dissenter was a British merchant named Augustus Lindley, who during the war pledged his ship to the Taiping cause. He lived in Nanking for a time and participated in many Taiping religious services. He survived the war and publicly derided Chinese Gordon and the ever-victorious army Writing that they betrayed their Christian brethren by siding with the opium addicted Qing. He later died in England, still holding his unpopular opinion about the Taiping cause. The inscription on his gravestone reads Friend of China, Enemy of Oppression. For the businessmen, shipping magnates, and opium kingpins in England and France, the economic situation in China did not pan out as they had hoped. As the largely aimless Qing dynasty limped on into the 20th century, western capitalists grew annoyed at the chaos that frequently interrupted their lines of trade. However, they still defended their opposition to the Taiping, even as the hapless, decentralized Qing rulers jeopardized their profits. In the West, the Taiping Rebellion is often overlooked for the concurrent civil war that happened in the United States. Despite how similar the conflicts appeared on paper, Their ending could not have been more different. For the Taiping rebels, there was no signing of a treaty, there was no Appomattox Courthouse, there was no reconstruction, there was simply annihilation. In the end, disparaging accounts of the Taiping movement were predominant. It's the winners who write history, after all. Innumerable primary source accounts of the conflict from the Taiping perspective were destroyed or greatly altered to fit the ruling dynasty's narrative. For years, most people regarded the conflict and its eventual winner in a favorable light. But with time, prevailing sentiment of the Taiping Rebellion have changed somewhat, and have shifted more to this day. Indeed, many politicians later questioned the West's involvement. In 1909, elder Japanese statesman Ito Hirobumi reported this to an English journalist. Quote, The greatest mistake you Western people ever made, and more especially you English people, was to help the Manchus in putting down the Taiping Rebellion." Let us imagine, for a moment, the hypothetical future China would have had under the Taiping. A populous industrial nation interconnected by new roadways and rail lines, smokestacks rising, in a rapid industrial revolution the likes and scale of which never seen before a Christian theocratic monarch butting heads with presidents and prime ministers on the world stage, a Taiping heavenly kingdom, a divine vision of a young schoolteacher made real, racing towards modernity. Or perhaps they would have struggled to maintain their rule and modernize on a massive scale. Maybe millions more would have died in the process. We'll never know. A modern Taiping China evaporates into alternate timelines. The Taiping Rebellion was a turning point in world history, especially in regards to the relationship between the East and the West. In general, both sides thought they truly understood the other. And in the end, neither ever truly did. Historians have constantly tried to discern the inner workings of the mind of Hong Xiuquan, the heavenly king of the Taiping. But here's the thing about Hong Xiuquan: If you squint hard enough, He becomes whatever you want him to be. Enlightened revolutionary, evil usurper, dictatorial mass murderer, small-town schoolteacher who could never pass the test that his life depended on, religious visionary, a cynical power monger who was Christian in name only. Some claim Hong Zhukun was simply a deceitful mastermind who never truly believed what he preached. But in all of my research, I think Hong Zhukun truly believed I don't think it was all deception, smoke, and mirrors. I think he genuinely thought he was God's second son. Perhaps it was this sincerity that carried him to unimaginable heights. That, combined with the bitterness of rejection, the spite of a scholar scorned. These little human longings of a single man, the need to be accepted, to be loved, destabilized an empire. Hong Zhuquan planted the seeds of the Qing dynasty's downfall, even as his own regime crumbled. His vision for a heavenly kingdom, so naive in its beginning, built around the ideas of Christian brotherhood, spiraled into something monstrous and destructive, a bitter irony. That irony is perhaps best exemplified as a silk banner hung on the wall of the Palace of Nanking during his rule. On it was painted an excerpt from the Bible, Matthew 5.9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Yet perhaps a more fitting platitude for the eventual trajectory of the typing Heavenly Kingdom would have been a quote from Confucius, wise words Zhu doubtlessly never forgot. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Despite Zhu bitter end, Despite the death toll of his reign and the atrocities enacted on his watch, no one can say that his vision wasn't transcendent. Whether that vision was dreadful or wonderful, heavenly or dystopian, is up for debate. But he remained faithful to that longing for heaven on earth, a world where men and women are equal, where China is opened up to the world, where all is abundant and freely shared. The real pull of Utopia, is the promise that Heaven can be pulled down, Paradise can be made real, here and now. It's a beautiful goal, the essential religious quest to find life before death, not after. But so often, the vision is compromised, horrific means are justified by ends that are never attained. And yet we keep reaching for Utopia, only to find it impossible to ever truly implement. We try and we try and we try again, like Hong Zhukuan, climbing the ladder to heaven, yet always falling back to earth. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I am eternally grateful to Thomas Harlander, who did not know he was signing up to edit a small novel when he came on as story editor. The research for this episode was extensive, to say the least, but I wanted to point you to some of the books that I utilized in my research. The first is a book by historian Jonathan Spence called God's Chinese Son which focuses on Hong Xiuquan's theology and the origins of the movement. The second is Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt, which hones in on more of the Western perspective and how European missionaries, diplomats, and journalists grappled with what to make of the uprising. And uh, another is What Remains, Coming to Terms with Civil War in 19th Century China by Toby Meyer Fong, which dives into the accounts of victims of the Civil War and the collective psychological trauma that hung over China for decades. Very depressing read, for sure. This is by far my longest episode. I'll let you be the judge whether it's the best. If you're a regular listener, consider this a call to arms to tell someone else about Historium. Every single recommendation matters. If you have to, just grab their phones and download Historium on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. You can follow Historium on any social media platform. For access to all of my bonus episodes, you can find that on Patreon. My patrons have been incredibly patient with this episode, but now I hope your patience was rewarded. Overall, I'm very proud of this episode, and for my patrons, I hope you are too. As always, thanks for listening.